All right, here we go. This is part six in the Women in Ministry series, an exhaustive, exhaustive series on everything the Bible teaches about women in ministry. Um, we tend to focus on the topic of women as elders, but we're actually covering kind of all the gamut of things. And today, uh, we're going to get into one of the reasons I didn't answer questions about this topic for years. <laughs> like years, people would send me, some of you sent me questions. And my reply was something like, hey, um, you know, look the scriptures and honor your conscience before God as to what you might do in ministry. And that's not a great answer for a leader to give, but I didn't know what my right answer was. And here's the reason, one of the reasons. I was like, what if I haven't heard really good arguments for egalitarian views being raised more in a complementarian environment? Like I just haven't been exposed to them. What if there's scriptures I've overlooked that really weigh down on this topic? They, they bear down on the issue of women in ministry. But I haven't even looked at these passages in that light. Like I didn't think about it because nobody in my circle is thinking about that. And this was a fear of mine. So after months of research, I could say like, yeah, there was lots of arguments I'd never heard, lots I hadn't considered, and we're talking about them throughout this series, we're taking kind of an egalitarian path, surveying through primarily egalitarian, but also complementarian literature, you know, to see the, the ways people defend the idea that women should serve in any and all positions in the church without any kind of limitations. And today, we're going to talk about specifically five arguments that for the most part, I hadn't really given a lot of thought to. And the first couple are not that good, <laughs> just being real with you. But the, the other ones after that, the other three after that are stronger. And they, while I can't go with them all the way down their path to becoming egalitarian, I'm fundamentally not able to go there because I don't think scripture or history supports that view. And I think it's just abundantly clear. I don't think this should be a big debate. It obviously is a big debate, but after having done a lot of research, I don't think it should be. Um, because it's not a gray area, I don't think. Um, now, there's gray areas within it, but overall, it seems like the evidence is stacked up in one side. Um, but but there's a lot we can learn from the egalitarian arguments, and there's there's corrections that complementarians need because there are there is there really is chauvinism or um, whatever you know misogynism, whatever you want to call it. There's basically a negative attitudes towards women that occur frequently not just because of complementarian teaching in the Bible, but maybe because of the cultures that we're in, because there really have been historically bad attitudes towards women, and that has affected the church. And only a careful analysis of Scripture will let us rip culture away from our understanding of the Word of God, but without ripping Scripture <laughs> out of context to basically fit a new culture that sees the attitudes of the past as reversible and instead of just fixable. So anyhow, that all being said, if I haven't confused you yet, I'm Pastor Mike Winger and you've stumbled upon my Women in Ministry series and there'll be a link down below to like a playlist of all the videos I'm doing in this series and we're gonna be having timestamps. I'll even tell you timestamps today for this video. You just need to wait till tomorrow for us to get those timestamps up. But if you wanna navigate the video carefully, let me just run through the five arguments that we're going to look at today because if, if you know if you're complementarian like me you probably focus on like first timothy 2 and 3 that this is sort of where you focus and it, that's okay to focus there but you don't want to neglect these other things right there's the egalitarians are right we tend to focus on just a few passages we should bring in all the scripture on the topic and that's what we're doing in this series so that being said here's the quick arguments um the first is the persecution argument i'm going to run through them preview and then I'll go through them in detail. The persecution argument goes like this and this the only person I've heard who's prominent who I've heard promote this in detail is uh, some well little details N.T. Wright. Dr. N.T. Wright says that Paul 
in the book of Acts, Paul was perse- when he was still Saul, or I mean, I, th- I think he was actually, I think Paul was just his Greek name, so people called him that probably that early as well. At any rate, when he was putting women in prison, he was persecuting them in, in the book of Acts chapter 8. He's persecuting them, putting them, putting them in prison. This proves that they were leaders because women uh, would normally avoid persecution as, as persecution would focus on leadership, not just on every follower. So his case is, hey, there were women leaders because there were women being persecuted. The second argument is that Jesus was training women to be rabbis, not just disciples. This is a big argument because it means that Jesus' intention from the beginning with, say, um, Mary and Martha, when one was sitting at his feet and he says, you know, let her sit at my feet and learn, that that is actually her being trained to be a rabbi, not just a disciple, meaning Jesus' intention all along was for women leaders like in an eldership position in the church. Argument number three is that there's there's something we call the universal priesthood of believers. This is the idea that uh, that every Christian, every Christian is a priest according to the New Testament. Now, if every Christian's a priest, that means women are also priests in a biblical sense in the New Testament. Now, they're not Levites, they're not in the Levitical priesthood, but they're just priests under Christ. Therefore, the conclusion is, therefore, women can do any ministry a man can do. Because if they're in this high role of priest, they can do any ministry a man can do. They could be elders. We'll get into that in detail. The fourth argument is the prophecy argument. Um, If women can prophesy to the whole church, right, if they can prophesy to the whole church at a gathering of men and women, mixed gathering, then they conclude women, uh, we should be able to teach. Women should be allowed to teach in the gathered assembly if they can prophesy in that environment too. Prophecy, they say, is a very high role of instructing others in God's truth, is it not? And so eldership, some would say, is an even lesser role than being prophetic. And so we're going to dig into that in detail. The final argument, the fifth argument I'll get into today in this, what will be a very long video. Again, I recommend there's timestamps that, that will be down below. If you need, if you're, I've heard enough about that argument, you need to move on. I want to make this stuff as accessible to you. My goal is to help you, not just get you to watch content. So the fifth argument is that God has gifted women. And this is interesting. This is probably the one that I think took me back the most, gave me pause the most. It goes like this. God has gifted women with spiritual gifts, such as teaching and leadership. And these are spiritual gifts in the Bible. Well, if he's gifted women with those things, not just men, and there's no good reason to think he limits the giving of those gifts to only men. If he's gifted women with leadership and teaching, shouldn't we give them the opportunity to lead and teach the congregation? Isn't that the purpose of the gifts? Now, I don't go all the way to egalitarianism with any of these arguments, but especially the last three, there are huge balances out. Like this is going to be correction towards a lot of complementarians. And at least I think so. I'm going to give you the data, work through it on your own, think about it, See how much you agree with me, disagree with me all you want. I really don't care. I'm just trying to be faithful in my role here, and uh, you can try to be faithful in yours. Okay, so we're going to start with the two weakest arguments, and then the rest have more value. The first one is the persecution argument. This comes from Dr. N.T. Wright, and um, he says that there's evidence that women were leaders in the sense of being very high leaders in the New Testament church because of how they were persecuted. Let me allow him to put this in his own words. He says here, It's fascinating. This is uh, in his uh, book, Surprised by Scripture. He says here, it's fascinating then that when we turn to Acts and the persecution that arose in the church, not least at the time of Stephen, we find that women are being targeted equally alongside men. Saul of Tarsus was going to Damascus to catch women and men alike and haul them off into prison. Bailey, that's a scholar named Kenneth Bailey, Bailey points out on the basis of his cultural parallels that this only makes sense 
if the women too are seen as leaders, influential figures within the community. Um, now you can you can strengthen this argument, and and N.T. Wright does. I won't share all the quotes here for the sake of time, but I'll, the summary is easy. He's like, hey, you know, women are here at the cross, and they're they're able to travel to the cross when the disciples of Jesus are afraid to go to the cross, right? They're, you know. John's off at a distance, Peter's warming himself by the fire, he denies Christ even, and the women feel they can freely go up to where Jesus is at the cross. Why is that? Because in their culture, women simply don't suffer the kinds of persecution men do. They're not seen as leaders of those movements. And therefore, when we see women later on in Acts being hauled away into prison, it means that they have risen up into a place of leadership in the New Testament church. Um, now, I really wanted to see Kenneth Bailey, that, that's the guy that N.T. Wright references. Uh, Kenneth Bailey is a scholar who's since passed, um, but he was a strong egalitarian scholar. And he supposedly made this argument somewhere. And I looked, I probably spent the better part of 12 hours just trying to find where Kenneth Bailey talks about these things. I got two of his books. I read a bunch of his papers. I, I looked at him up on Google Scholar doing searches. I finally went to find, try to contact N.T. Wright. Can you point me to where he says this? Because in, in N.T. Wright's work, and hear me out, people, because I know what you're about to type in the comments. <laughs> There's no footnotes, okay? There's no footnote to reference where Kenneth Bailey says this. There's no bibliography to tell you what book it was in. So I reached out to N.T. Wright on Twitter, found out he doesn't control his Twitter accounts. So then I went to his, um, which is fine, uh, I went to his Facebook discussion group and nobody there could answer the question. And so we, we then, someone got me in contact with N.T. Wright and he said that he found this from Kenneth Bailey uh, he got this from a lecture, if he remembers correctly, that Kenneth Bailey did in the 1990s. And he doesn't know if it was ever published or not. Now, there's nothing wrong with N.T. Wright saying things that Kenneth Bailey said in a lecture. But you realize what, what happens now is it's impossible, at least it seems impossible for us to access the research. And so it's more just a, a, a bare claim. We'll have to analyze it like a bare claim. There's no research. There's no like, uh, maybe there's research, but we don't know about where it is or what it is. Okay, so we just have to analyze the claim as it stands. So let's break down these claims now that I've explained why I'm not able to go deeper on this topic. I certainly tried. Um, women, okay, the first claim from N.T. Wright is that women were persecuted, quote, equally with men. I, I put that on, on the screen there for you. I even highlighted it. It's an interesting phrase to say that women were persecuted equally with men because it's a po it, it could be at least interpreted, maybe N.T. Wright didn't mean it this way, uh, but it could be interpreted as an overstatement. Because when you say persecuted equally, you might mean they experienced identical degree of persecution. I mean, they both were hauled into prison, but we don't know if the men received harsher treatment or not. We just don't, I'm just saying we have no details about that. So women persecuted equally, well, they were differently persecuted. Okay, but we'll move to the second point here. Second claim is that the best explanation, explanation of the fact that women were persecuted and dragged into prison by Paul in the book of Acts, we'll look at the details in the scripture in a moment, is that they were, quote, leaders, comma, influential figures within the Christian community. Now, it's true that women could often get away, right? I'm analyzing this claim now. It's true that women could get away uh, in areas that would be more dangerous for leaders of a, per, of a movement that's being persecuted. That's true that they could often do this. Again, the women at the cross, women at the cross are a good example of this. They were able to move more freely. And this is, this is not uncommon, uh, what I've been told. This is not uncommon even in uh, you know, real sort of male leadership communities when persecution's happening. The women tend to be less persecuted. So I've been told. Um, but here's the, here's the part that matters for the sake of our current study. Is the best explanation that women were persecuted, 
persecuted? Is it that they were leaders or influential figures? Is that the best explanation? Um, is it true then, here, here, let me put it another way. Is it true that if you are persecuted in the first century, you are therefore a leader of that movement? Because that's, that's what this claim boils down to. If you're a persecuted woman in particular, you must be a leader of the movement because only women would only be persecuted if they were actually leading the movement. That is what is going to make this very suspect. Um, let's go to Acts chapter 26 verses 9 through 11. Let's look at some scripture. And egalitarians who probably have a hard time watching my series because I'm just disagreeing with that side so often, hang in there. <laughs> I'll offer you more levels of agreement as we go. <laughs> but 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 fundamentally, I will disagree, continue to disagree with the egalitarian side. I am incredibly strongly convinced that it is fundamentally wrong, even though there is a lot of corrections that need to be brought into, especially the patriarchalist and the stronger complementarians. Um, so I'm trying to bring all that in this series. All right, here it is, Acts 26, verse 9 through 11. Paul says, Indeed, I myself thought, I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints, many of the saints, I shut up in prison. I, having received authority from the chief priests, when they were to be put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue, where? In every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them to foreign cities. So this is... Um, this is interesting. He, he, you know, okay, let, let's just take scripture. This is our, our, our text, right? This is our source material here. Who did Paul lock, lock up when he persecuted? He describes himself as locking up many of the saints, not leaders, not apostles, not elders, just saints. He just uses a general category for saints, for Christians. And saints here, for those who don't know, just refers to any Christian. Um, then he, it says he punished them in where? All the synagogues, in every synagogue. Now, this is interesting um, because the synagogues were not all being led by Christians. He went to synagogues and he would find if any Christians were attending the synagogue and he would seek to punish them, implying that he's not just looking for leaders. He's looking for anybody who's part of the movement. He wants to punish them, make them blaspheme. He wants to harm them. Then Acts, uh, oh, oh, and it also says why? Because he's going after leaders? No, because he's, he's enraged against them. This is a New King James Version we happen to have on the screen here. Not intentionally, but there it is. Um, so, you know, ESV says, in raging fury against them. He's, Paul hates Christians. He is persecuting every Christian he finds. In, in, whether they're in leadership or not, that's the context of Acts chapter, nine, chapter uh, 8, when that persecution breaks out. And when Paul talks about it in Acts 26, that's what he's talking about. Let's look at more details. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. This is going to show us that the persecution was not limited to the leaders. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through what they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now the, the effect of the persecution is really interesting here because those who were scattered are not the leaders. In fact, it's everyone but the apostles who flees Jerusalem. If per Here's the hypothesis. Persecution is against the leaders, right? Therefore, if someone's being persecuted, there's more reason to think they're a leader. If that was true, why do the non-leaders flee Jerusalem? This is because 
the exact persecution N.T. Wright is discussing was against all believers, just as Paul went to every synagogue and he's grabbing anybody who's a Christian and, he, and follower of Messiah Jesus, and he's going he's gonna to deal with them. So this is a persecution that arose against the church, not just against some group of leadership. Um, it's interesting that Stephen, the one who was stoned, was not a high leader. He was a deacon, if anything, and he, and he was stoned. It wasn't the apostles. Isn't that interesting? Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says, Saul, uh, during this persecution, made havoc of the church, entering what? Every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Now, this is the actual text in the scripture that says that men and women both were being persecuted, uh, N.T. Wright terms it, equally persecuted. But here, Paul goes house to house. He's going to every house. Like he, he quizzes you. Are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you do you say that Jesus is, is risen from the dead? Do you think that Jesus is the Messiah? All right, take him to prison. So this is a um, persecution of every Christian, not of the leadership. Therefore, when we see women being persecuted in Acts, we don't have a case that they're leaders. We can add several other points to this. Um, in Acts 8, lots of people flee persecution, but the leaders stay. Uh, therefore, normal believers were targeted, not just leaders. We can add more to this. Jesus warned that every believer would experience persecution, that this is something all believers have to prepare themselves for. He said that over and over again. And in the New Testament epistles, it encourages every believer to be ready to suffer persecution, every single believer. Therefore, the New Testament context does not say in any way, if you're persecuted, you must be an important leader. It just doesn't. It just says if you're persecuted, you must be a Christian. I think that's the bottom line. So we're going to go to the second argument. Okay, argument number two. This comes also from uh, Dr. N.T. Wright. And the reason why I'm covering his work, even though few scholars that, I, that I've found would make these arguments. Okay, there's, there's some that do, but very few. But the reason why I'm, I'm taking N.T. Wright and some of the arguments he brought that maybe I would have ignored otherwise is because so many of you said, Mike, N.T. Wright has influenced me in my thinking. He's had influence in my reasoning. He's the reason why I'm egalitarian. And so I want to cover the arguments that have influenced you. So I, I, I'm not picking on him. <laughs> I like N.T. Wright. I disagree with some of his theology in some pretty important areas. But I consider him a, a, a brother in Christ. And, um, and I think he's done some important work, especially on the resurrection of Christ, that I appreciate very much. So that being said, let me tell you why I think he's wrong about this. So the second argument is this. Jesus wasn't just training women to be disciples. He was training women to be rabbis. Here's N.T. Wright explaining this. He says, now the, the scene he's talking about is Mary and Martha, right? Um, one is sitting at the feet of Jesus learning, and the other one is busy with work. And Mary is told that, that, that she should sit at Jesus' feet, and she should be able to learn and be discipled. And her sister Martha is told that she's chosen a lesser task because she's doing, uh, she's basically being a hostess. She's taking care of home needs. Um, this is a text that's ripe for some really, like, uh, uncareful usage by egalitarians. It just is. But there's something important to learn from it. So here's what N.T. Wright says. She sat at the master's feet, quote, a phrase that doesn't mean what it would mean today. The adoring student gazing up in admiration and love at the wonderful teacher, as is clear from the use of the phrase elsewhere in the New Testament, for instance, Paul with Gamaliel, to sit at the teacher's feet is a way of saying you are being a student and picking up the teacher's wisdom and learning. In that very practical world, you would not do this just for the sake of information, 
or informing your own mind and heart, but in order to become yourself a teacher, a rabbi. Uh, okay, N.T. Wright doesn't base his whole egalitarian position on this text, but what he's saying is, when we read about Mary and we see her sitting at Jesus' feet, we have to understand that this is a, an idiom or a, a very weighted cultural phrase. Right? Like, like in, in English, we would have the phrase, do you take this man? Like that, everybody's like, oh, that's an important phrase. We know it means more than what the words look like they mean. He's saying, hey, sitting at the feet means she was being trained to be a rabbi. That's just what the term meant to those people at that time. So when we go to Luke 10.39, we can see the phrase itself. You know the passage. I'm not going to read the whole story because I think that you guys are familiar with Mary and Martha in Luke 10. If not, read Luke 10. <laughs> um, so he's there at Mary and Martha's house, and it says she had a sister called Mary who, was, uh, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. That's the phrase. This means she's being trained to be a rabbi. Um, then as we go on, Martha's, hey, make my sister help me. She's letting me serve alone. And Jesus is like, hey, Martha, you got a lot of stuff you're worried about. But one thing's more important. It's the most important thing. And Mary has chosen that. It will not be taken away from her. Um, so let's dig through this. For this case is Acts 10 or Acts 22, verse 3. This is sort of the New Testament proof text that um, N.T. Wright offers to say, look, the phrase sit at the feet, it really meant more than she was just learning at that moment. It meant she was being trained to be a rabbi. So Paul talks about himself and his previous teacher, a guy named Gamaliel, very famous Jewish rabbi from the first century, even outside the New Testament. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward God as you are, as you all are today. So Paul's like giving his credentials. He's like, I've been trained. Like I, I went to Harvard. Like he's saying, I sat under Gamaliel. You should see I'm a faithful Jew who cares about our, our uh, the Torah, who cares about the Tanakh, who cares about the promises to the fathers. He's trying to give his credibility to these people so they'll hear him as he talks about his case for the scriptures or for Jesus ultimately. So here's the question we have then. Okay, Paul definitely was being taught. Ultimately, he ended up being taught to be a rabbi, not just a student, not just a disciple of Gamaliel. But was every person who, quote, sat at the feet of Gamaliel trained to be a rabbi? That's the question we have to have put out here. Certainly, some of the people who sat at Gamaliel's feet became rabbis, but did everybody? Was every single person Gamaliel taught supposed to be a rabbi? If they use the phrase sit at the feet, and we don't, here's the problem, we don't have any ancient support for this. N.T. Wright offers no footnotes or support in his work for this. I don't know other people who've offered any detailed analysis that would involve first century source material using the phrase sit at the feet to reference being trained for, to become a teacher, not just to learn. And so if we don't have any of that support, all we have is one text and it's just real thin. So the pro case is based upon one text. It's kind of thin. But here's the case against that view that women, that Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus meant she was being trained to be a rabbi, not just a knowledgeable disciple. Luke 8, verse 3. It says here, um, oh, or verse 35. Hold on just a second. Luke 8, 35. It says here, Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom uh, the demons had gone. Here, I'm going to switch to this translation just for consistency with my notes. It's confusing my brain. 
um, no, no trickery involved, read whatever translation you want. Um, then the people went out to see what had happened and they came to, to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Here's another use of the phrase sitting at the feet. In fact, it's sitting at the feet of Jesus. In fact, it's sitting at the feet of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, same author, two chapters away from where it happens when Mary does it. So this is, a, this is important. We should analyze every use of the term, correct? To see if it's a consistent thing. Um, the demon-possessed man has just been healed. And if you, if you take uh, N.T. Wright's interpretation here, that this means he's, trained, he's being trained to be a rabbi, that might sound good. Hey, Jesus is training this man who was demon-possessed to be a leader in the church. The problem is he literally got trained for like an hour. Like that's it. Like this isn't rabbinical training because it's, there's not enough of it. The other the disciples were with Jesus for three years. This guy's with Jesus for a brief moment. He sits at Jesus' feet. Then the people come and they're like, hey, leave our area. Jesus leaves and he tells the man to stay and he sends him back into his town. This is not a man who's trained to be a rabbi. But Luke is comfortable using the phrase sitting at the feet of Jesus for someone who's not being trained to be a rabbi. He's just being educated. He's being perhaps taught. He's learning from Jesus truths about the kingdom. But no. So um, I think that we can set this one aside. Um, N.T. Wright's options are either you're sitting at the feet of Jesus for the sake of information for your heart and mind, or you're becoming a teacher and rabbi. I think there's another option. <laughs> there's a third option that hasn't been considered is you're learning theology and the teachings of Christ that you might know God better, understand him better, be, be able to like follow him more. And be a real disciple who lives these things out. This isn't just for the sake of information. And so I think we can set this one aside. But before we do, there's a huge, huge correction for complementarians that you can learn from this passage about Mary. There are some complementarians out there who and patriarchalists who think that we should limit the kind of theology a woman should learn. And I, I know, you know, I, I was, uh, this was shared with me on Facebook. A woman said that she had sent... Uh, she had gone into theology classes, and so she, she's at, at a college. She's learning theology at a Christian university or college. And there she's being told by other classmates that she shouldn't be here because she's a woman. Now, this is the story as she told it to me, and I take it at face value. This is horribly wrong because this is effectively the same thing that was told to Mary. Mary, you know, you shouldn't be learning all this theology stuff. You could, you could, you could. You could get you could get little trickles of theology from the rest of us. We'll learn you your place is not to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn this sort of like deep theological training. And I think that that's incredibly wrong. Um, Mary is a disciple. She's a disciple who is rightly choosing to learn theology over the tasks of the day, which is part of the whole Jesus saying, like, don't labor for the bread which perishes, you know, labor for that which lasts for everlasting life. Uh, you know, if you would ask me, I'd, you know, you're here to get water. You'd ask of me, I'd give you living water. He says to the woman at the well, Jesus wants us to learn and prioritize the, do the doctrines of Christ, the theology of understanding the word of God, knowing deeply, deeply our understanding of what God has revealed to us, especially in scripture. That being said, a Christian woman should not be withheld from any theological education. A Christian woman should not be withheld from any theological education. She should prioritize those things. If she's thinking, I just want to learn better. Th I'm just going to take a class on systematic theology because I just want to understand these things better because I love the Lord. And I think that his, his, his truth is so valuable. Then I'm going to say like, hey, Mary, you're choosing a, a good thing when you do that. 
So this is a correction from compliment for some complementarians. Um, no theology, no theology. Again, I'm using these categories carefully. No theology is off limits to a woman. I don't see how we have a biblical case for that. Where's the biblical case for women shouldn't learn certain theological truths or something like that? That's weird. Um, yeah. We will talk more about that as we get to 1 Timothy 2, as we get to 1 Corinthians 14. I will deal with those passages in future videos. Let's go to argument number three, though. Argument number three, this is the universal priesthood of believers argument. So let me explain how this argument goes. Um, the basic idea is, uh, we, in the New Testament, we are all told we're priests. We're a kingdom of priests. And if this is the case, then women are also priests. And priestly functions include things like teaching and, and leading. And so... Why can't women be elders? If they're priests, they, then they should be able to be elders. Um, we'll deal with this in more detail, more carefully, analyzing exactly how complementarians put it. But first, let me say there's a lot of confusion on the idea of priests in Christianity. Now, in my own tradition, right, there's no priests. There's just, I mean, every believer is considered a priest, but there's no priests. Well, for the most part, there's one area where even complementarians sometimes create a priesthood where there isn't one. I'll get there in a second. It's about husbands. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to make everybody mad. <laughs> um, but it's not my fault. If, if there's so much confusion on this topic, I want to bring clarity. So in Christianity, there is, simply is no select group of individuals within the body of Christ who are the priests. Yes, it happened early in church history. Priests started coming up. But that is explained by the culture and the environment around it. It's not explained by the New Testament or the teaching of the apostles. It's not explained by those things. Um, it's it, It's... It's in Roman Catholicism. We have a category of priests. It's in Eastern Orthodoxy. It's in Anglicanism. It's in uh, the Oriental Orthodox Church. It's some Lutheran churches, right? There's there's priests. Now, they're not all the same. Like I said, this is this is not cut and dry. In some cases, they have the name priest, but their function is just like the function of a teaching elder of a church. They're just called a priest. In fact, the English word priest comes from the, the Greek word presbyter, which is not the word priest, which is the word elder. So there's all kinds of confusion. But when you read the New Testament, you want to know that there's no individual groups that what the of what the Bible considers priests from within the body of Christ. Everyone's just a priest. Because in some cases, like in Roman Catholicism, for example, the priests really function as mediators who mediate God's grace to you through things that they can do that you can't do. You need them in order to access grace, at least in those ways. There's other ways, but in those ways, in the ways in which they do it for you, they're functioning as a mediator to bring grace of God to you, which is grace is treated like almost like a substance that has to be brought through people. This is all not biblical. Let me read and build a case now. Let's, let's look at scripture and let's just establish the doctrine of the universal priesthood of believers and what it means. This is great theology stuff. Or I don't know if you were expecting this much theology in a women in ministry uh, teaching, but you're going to get it. <laughs> so uh, it's good stuff. Let's survey through what several scriptures say about the universal priesthood of believers, something that's rarely taught on, but something that matters a lot to us. Here's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what, you know, like data can we get out of this? Let's, let's not just read it like it's a poem. Let's read it like we're learning our theology here. 
um, we come to him like living stones. So there's an analogy of like, he's building us. We're the temple now. The church is the temple. We're which isn't being built with stones, it's being built with living stones. Jesus is the living stone, the cornerstone, but he's the ultimate living stone through which our life flows through, through him. And we are a spiritual house. Okay, that includes every Christian, right? These terms, living stones, spiritual house, this includes every believer. You would never say to women, you're not part of the spiritual house. But if that applies to every believer, then the holy priesthood term, which is just comma, same category, same group, is a um, spiritual house. They're like living stones and they're a holy priesthood. Well, that means women are part of that priesthood too. And the purpose of our priesthood, the function is to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. No mediator. I'm the one offering the sacrifice directly to God, not for my sins. There was lots of different kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Not an animal sacrifice, not a, not a physical sacrifice, a spiritual sacrifice. That is my worship, my love for God, my life given over to God, these things are being offered to him. I am a priest. I don't go to a priest to offer something for me. I bring it myself because I'm connected to Jesus directly. Let's develop this a little more fully and you'll see why I say like Roman Catholicism, it, 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 it damages this picture um, with the way that their priests function. So Romans 1.5 says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the, rulers of, the ruler of the kings of the, on the earth, on earth, excuse me, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we're, we're a kingdom and we're priests. Well, who's the we? Does this include women? Right. Well, it, it includes everyone who what? Who was loved by Jesus and was freed from our sins by Jesus' blood. This is the same group of people. Right? Where those who are loved by Jesus and freed from our sins by his blood are also a kingdom and priests. This is the universal priesthood of believers. Every believer is a priest in this sense. Okay, let's look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, this is Jesus, he's the worthy one here, to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people to, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Wait, who's a kingdom and priest, right? It's not just talking about a select cast of individuals within the church, some special clergy role. It's talking about what people, people who were... Um, who were ransomed by Jesus, who were ransomed from every tribe and language and people and nation, and they're all kingdom, a kingdom and priests. And they're going to reign on the earth. That's men and women. Women are included in this. Those ransomed are, kingdom, are a kingdom and are priests. The, the last priest verse I'll go to is Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Who's going to share in the first resurrection? That every believer in Christ who is saved by him, who is, you know, to whom he said like, hey, because I live, you'll live. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. Men and women in rulership and priesthood for a thousand years. And I won't get into the debate of what the millennium is. I have another video on that. <laughs> um, and um, anyway, that being said, um, women are priests too. Do you, do you see my, my case here is women are priests too. The Bible never speaks of another priesthood within 
that like we have all the Christians are priests, but there's another group of people who are extra priesty. It doesn't say that. There's no other second category of priests. The inclusion of priesthoods within Christianity is at best confusing and at worst very harmful to your walk with God because you don't realize you have access to him by his grace without a, without some other priest, right? Just you and Jesus. Um, so women are priests too. Now, um, this is going to get a little involved. So let me offer an argument by, that some complementarians give that I've, I've never given. And I wouldn't give, and here's why I wouldn't give it. I think it's wrong. But some complementarians have said that eldership or the pastorate, I'll, I'll say a biblical elder, is priestly in character. That the nature of this leadership is priestly, and that's the reason why women can't be priests, because um, men are the priests. Men represent the priesthood in Christianity. I find this whole argument very problematic. Um, Dr. Stanley Grenz is an egalitarian scholar who writes about this. So he, he doesn't believe the argument, but he writes about it. And I think he has some interesting things to say. Let me put him up on screen. And I'll read this rather long quote from Dr. Stanley Grenz. Anybody who's looking for exactly where all these quotes are coming from, you can download my notes. I will, after the stream, I will put a link in the video description of every video in this series that gives you exactly the notes. You can download my very notes. It's got footnotes. It's got references galore. Um, I just don't want to bog down the verbal teaching by reading things like Discovering Biblical Equality, page 311, InterVarsity Press Kindle Edition, every single time I read a quote. <laughs> so uh, here's what Stanley Grin says about this. A corollary to the claim that the pastoral office is authoritative and hence off limits to women is the idea that the pastoral uh, role is priestly in character. Because women could not serve as priests in the Old Testament, the argument runs that pastoral office or function is properly filled by men only. The view that the pastorate is priestly in character is widely assumed among opponents of women's ordination in the more liturgical traditions, the Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Anglican communities. But it has found its way into the thinking of partisans in free, church, free churches as well. Now, I'm going to say, as I've already expressed, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Anglican communions, where they have something called a priest, that's that's the wrong term. They're confusing things by using the wrong term. And possibly the very function of that person, that man in that role, is unbiblical because he's being a mediator, which means he's robbing you of your place with God and he's taking your priesthood away and he's claiming it for himself. That does happen in some churches. But let's read the next quote. <laughs> that being explained. All right, Stanley Grins goes on and says, the New Testament portrayal of the church as a priesthood of believers implies that the parallel to the Levitical priesthood is not the ordained office or leadership function, but the church as a whole. If the people and not merely church leaders are God's holy priesthood, then the exclusion of women from the pastorate on the basis of an all-male nature of the all-male nature of the Old Testament priesthood is unwarranted. Um, here's his points. Let me summarize. First, the New Testament parallel to the Levitical priesthood isn't elders, it's every believer. I sort of agree, but I don't agree totally. Um, okay, we shouldn't push the parallel too far. There are some functions of the Levitical priesthood that have transferred into every believer's life because of the fulfillment we have in Jesus. But does that mean there's a perfect parallel? Everything an Old Testament priest did is now transferred over to individual believers. That's where I would put the brakes on because the New Testament doesn't do that. So it's just, it's just more complicated than that. We shouldn't just be like, what's the parallel to the Old Testament here? And then draw our conclusions. We should look at more details. 
Number two, his second claim is that <clears throat> excluding women from being elders on the basis of eldership being priestly, that doesn't work. Stanley Grenz is right. It doesn't really work. I, I, knew, I know someone who, who did this argument, an egalitarian scholar, actually a female egalitarian scholar, a woman, who said that the reason why she felt women shouldn't be pastor, elder type position is because the priesthood belongs to, the, to men. The priesthood is masculine in character. It's part of the imaging. Now, God can do that if he wants. I'm not one of those who's going to be like, that's sexist of God. Like I'm, I'm like, God is the ruler of all creation. He can set things up however he wants. And I'm going to respect that and trust he has good reasons. But my pushback and I actually went to the scholar after she had a lecture at the ETS conference one year. And I went up to her afterwards after hearing her lecture. And I was like, man, I, I'm really curious how, what you do with the universal priesthood of believers, because your argument is based on the priesthood being masculine and, and the leadership in the church and in the home is priestly and therefore women shouldn't hold it. So what, what do you do about the universal priesthood of believers? And she said, you know, I haven't really figured that out yet. And, and I thought, oh, I mean, sometimes you don't realize that scholars who you, you are brilliant and they've done lots of homework on issues that there's sometimes potential defeaters to their arguments that they've never really looked at carefully. And that, that's not at all a slight on her. She's just something she just, I don't know. That's a gap in my knowledge. One day I'll, fi I'll figure that out. Um, well, for me, at least, any argument against women leaders because current leadership roles are priestly in character is a bad argument. But to put the brakes on, <laughs> I, I don't think this means we can't learn anything from the fact that, that the priesthood was male in the Old Testament. Because there may be elements that were in the priesthood that are also in home leadership that are in other things that are that God meant to preserve for me, for men and not women. And therefore, we can learn something from an all-male priesthood in Leviticus that doesn't mean anything about a priestly character of modern um, pastoral or elder positions. I've, I'm sorry if that's confusing. You might have to replay what I said. We'll get into some more details now and it might become more clear. I realize this stuff's a little complicated, but sometimes, you know, someone feels the issue is so simple and when I'm coming to, I'm coming with a knife and I'm cutting the issue into six issues and that can be a little annoying, but I think that it actually just is different issues and we have to do that. So Stanley Grins also makes a different argument. His argument is that whoever is a priest should be able to learn, excuse, excuse me, should be able to be an elder. This is where it becomes relevant to at least my understanding of this issue. I reject the previous complementarian stuff that he talked about, but here he builds his own case. He just provided a defeater. Hey, don't tell me, you know, eldership is priestly and therefore women can't do it. That doesn't work. I agree. But now he offers his own case, which is women are priestly and therefore they can be elders. Let me read it to you in his own words. Stanley Grin says the following. He says, denying that the priesthood of all believers opens the door to women in ministry requires, however, that this doctrine be deemed irrelevant to the issue of pastoral leadership. Um, <clears throat> so his argument has been uh, up, up until this point in, in the book, he's saying, um, women are priests, therefore they can be elders. And if you're going to tell me that doesn't work, then you're, you're telling me that the priestly nature of believers has nothing to do with ministry. Um, or with pastoral leadership. I think I don't entirely agree. We could replace the word irrelevant in the quote that's on your screen there with insufficient for. And then all of a sudden it makes a lot of sense, right? Like you, maybe you have to be a priest 
as all believers are, to do any ministry on, you know, from Christ. To do any ministry from him, you have to be in Christ and be a priest in Christ. But it may be that one qualification of being a priest is insufficient for every ministry in Christ. Perhaps you also need other things. Being a human, for instance, here's an example, is necessary for being a human mother. But if you're going to be a human mother, you can't only be human. You also have to be female and have a kid. <laughs> So, so like, you, you know, be, to be a human mother, there's got to be more than just humanity. So humanity is necessary, but not sufficient for making you a human mom. I have humanity. It's not enough to make me a mom. Um, so priestly priesthood is necessary, but not sufficient to qualify one for eldership. I think that that's the bottom line. And the New Testament seems to support this. Let me read you another quote from him on how he argues for this in a bit more detail. He says, the principle of the universal priesthood implies that the Spirit's call of someone to the pastorate arises fundamentally out of his call to all believers to be ministers of Christ. Within this fellowship of believer priests, race, social status, and gender cannot be overriding factors that disqualify a believer priest for selection to leadership among God's people. For service in the pastorate is based on the Spirit's sovereign call and gifting of certain persons for this particular ministry. Now, Stanley Grins is much more scientific in the way he writes as a scholar. Um, a lot of the stuff I've been reading from scholarship, when it comes from the egalitarian perspective, is is much more um, emotionally laden. And I'm, if if that seems negative to you, sorry. <laughs> it's just, but his is more like scientific in his explanation. I appreciate that because it provides clarity. But I'm going to offer two pushbacks. I'm going to leave this on screen because his quote is a bit weighty. Might be a little bit hard to understand at first. So you might pause it and reread it. Make sure you, make sure you understand that. But two things I'll say. Um, that if a male and female can be priests, then he's saying you, you can't have male-female limitations on who's pastor or elder. So the implication is that every priest can be an elder. Um, at least that's one way of arguing here, but not all priests can be elders because eldership has a whole list of requirements beyond simply being a Christian. What I'm saying is the Bible in a pragmatic way refutes his argument because it goes, it goes on and adds more requirements beyond priesthood for someone to be an elder. There are different requirements expressly given in scripture, right? For instance, not everyone's able to teach, so being a priest simply isn't enough. You also have to be able to teach. If the New Testament is clear that there are gender requirements also for eldership and being a priest isn't enough, we already know that, then we have a really a really strong defeater for Grenza's argument. So in other words, I could say, well, God said so. And that could be my response to Grenz. It's like, hey, we're all priests, but we're, but we're not all qualified to be elders. God said so. What are you going to argue against God <laughs> like for saying that? It just seems like it ends up being weird. Um, there's a second point he makes, and you might think I've been missing his argument. I'm tackling his argument in three stages here. So the, the second stage is that limitations on who can be an elder, especially based on gender, he says would remove the, quote, spirit's sovereign call and gifting. Now, it's a big challenge to a move, to a movement, to say, hey, you, your requirements on who can be leaders, you've killed the sovereignty of the spirit in your movement. That's a big, big requirement, a big statement. And it definitely 
moves a lot of people, right? It moves them. But here's the problem. If the Holy Spirit is the source of the limitation, you're not removing the sovereign call of the Spirit, you're responding to it. If the Holy Spirit, if he's the one who is telling us only men can be elders, if that's the case, then, then this whole argument falls apart. In that case, ignoring the limitations given by the Spirit would be removing the sovereign call of the Spirit. And forcing women into positions uh, to say, I'm going to approve them in positions of eldership if the Bible doesn't, if the Holy Spirit doesn't, you're the one ignoring the call of the Holy Spirit. So this is heavy claims that are being thrown out here, but they're all beside the point, right? What we need to do is establish what Scripture teaches the Spirit has done, not hypothesize about what the Spirit might do. That's why we need to go back to text, the Spirit-inspired text of Scripture for this issue. Um. Also, his third, his argument, which I still have on screen for you, is, and you could double check me here, his argument is based on these two ideas, that calling to the priesthood is based on, uh, calling to eldership, excuse me, is based on being priests and having gifts. And that's the only factors. If you're a priest and you have the proper gifts, you can, you can be an elder. Now, in video four, I went over this in detail, right? But there are, and, and that's going to be in the playlist that's down below, um, or you can go to BibleThinker.org and you can see this Women in Ministry series in full there as well. And it's all free. Everything's free. I'm not charging you guys anything. I'm not asking for anything in return. This is just, just for you to hopefully benefit and bless you. Um, but priesthood and gifting are not the only factors in who would be an elder. They're just not. And if, hypothetically, one of those factors is being a man, that's offensive to our culture. I get it. But how do you argue against that? Like when, if it's God's the one saying, no, this is, I want it this way. I have my reasons. What if he never even tells you his reasons? He's God. Like do what he says. If he said only people with bald spots on their heads could be elders, I would, I'd obey it. I'd think it sounded weird, but I'd realize I'm, I'm ignorant. God knows what he's doing. If God said only people with, um, you know, who were taller than, than 5'10 can be in leadership, I would honor that. I'd still be in leadership, by the way. <laughs> but I would honor that. If he said only people who were shorter than 5'5 five five could be in leadership, I'd honor that too. Like, I, I don't understand the, um, the social rage some people have. Okay. Uh, what does it mean then? Um, what, is, what does your priesthood mean as a Christian? I want to now make my case. I talked about Grenz's case. Here's my case for why priesthood matters, how it means husbands are not the priests of their home, not in a biblical sense. I'm against a, a billion egalitarians when I say that, but or complementarians when I say that, I, I think, but I think it's important to say, and I'll explain it. Um, so, and But why I think priesthood does not translate into you can be an elder too, just by, by virtue of being a priest. Okay. What it does mean, uh, you being a priest in Christ, it means that nobody mediates between you and God. That's a very, very important thing. Mediation is not teaching. Teaching is not mediating. Mediating is helping to establish relationship and rightness of relationship with you and God. In other words, I'm saved and I'm right with God with or without anybody, any other Christian involved. I don't need another mediator. But that doesn't mean I don't need a teacher. So. First Timothy 2.5, it says there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. How do I get rid of all these highlights that didn't used to be here? Where are all they coming from? They're not mine. Oh, great. A thousand people highlighted that text. Just a second. It's like a, I must have clicked a button in, in Logos. Uh, 
Did that do it? That did nothing. Alright, I'll have to fiddle with it later. I don't I don't see. Logos Bible software. It's it's great and it's also a mixed bag and it's super expensive. So anyhow, um there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the only mediator, and it's in the context of him making us right with God. Me accessing God's grace comes through Jesus, nobody else. People who tell you otherwise, they've added church tradition onto the teaching of scripture. Hebrews 10 helps us affirm this. Verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That's talking about like the, the, the holiest place of the temple. But Hebrews talks about like a heavenly temple. In other words, you could draw near to God's very presence, right? In heaven. This is the idea. You could draw, you could draw near to God's very presence with confidence. This is something only a priest could do before. Right? By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, Jesus's body is seen as a representative of this thick curtain that used to exist in the temple on earth. And since we have a great high priest, Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, when you understand the, me the symbolic meaning of these terms, it's just like it blows you away. You get to draw near to Jesus because of Jesus. No mediator needed. Nothing needed beyond the sacrifice of Jesus and a conscience that has been cleansed by his love and his blood and his sacrifice for you. You've been washed pure. There's no mediator. There's no other priest. You could do what the priest did, the high priest, and walk into the, into the temple. Why? Because as you walk into the, the center of the temple, the very presence of God, so to speak, you walk in with Jesus and through Jesus. So you have total access to God. Because he's, you know, the high priest would mediate in the temple they would go in, they would offer blood, then they would come out. Jesus does something better than that. He goes in, metaphorically, he offers his own blood, literally and metaphorically, but he doesn't just come out. He then asks us to come in too. I've really made the way you can come in too because he's done something better than what the temple or the high priest could do before. All that being said, said there is zero, zero place in the Christian church for a special group of Christians who have a special access to God and they become a bridge for other Christians to access God's grace because Jesus is your full access. Never let someone become your mediator. Oh, I can't come to God. Maybe I can get pastor to pray for me and maybe then I can draw near to God. No, stop it. You and Jesus. Pa the pastor can pray for you. He can pray with you. He can preach the gospel to you. He can teach you. But your access is through faith in Christ. It's not through some other necessary means. So um, this, is, uh, this is to say... Um, all of us are priests. This is against Mormonism, uh, Catholicism, and some Orthodox views and things like that. Uh, Hebrews 6.19, here's another scripture I'll give you. And you'll see why this weighs in on women in ministry. If you haven't seen it yet, I'll explain it in just a moment. Hebrews 6.19 says, we have, this, um, as a sure and we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. When you get the meaning of that, I get it's foreign to people who are less familiar with scripture. When you get the meaning of that, the entering behind the curtain is, is metaphor for you draw into the very presence of holy God almighty because Jesus has gone before you and he's made the way. He's your high priest. He's your mediator. You don't need another like 1 Timothy 2 says. So, so this is um, where I disagree with many complementarians. Um, even with people I've loved and respected and heard teaching in the past, received from people I've had as pastors. 
I do not believe the husband is the priest of his home, biblically speaking. Husbands who felt you are, I'm the priest of my home, and this gives you a sense of responsibility, so you try to lead well in your home and bring spiritual blessings. I think that's a good effect of thinking you're the priest of the home, but I'm not thinking you really are. Because biblically speaking, every believer in your home is a priest, and you're not their mediator. I think this is kind of important, right? The husband is not the priest of his home in the biblical sense. Perhaps he should be a spiritual leader in his home, a spiritual leader in his home, but so should the wife, right? She should, she should submit to him, but, but he's not her mediator. It, she's not limited in her walk with, to his blessings. Um, he, she doesn't go to God through her husband. No, she has her own walk with God through Christ in their relationship at home, he's the head or the final leader in that in that relationship between them in the home. But when it comes to her supernatural, eternal, living relationship with God Almighty, he's just not the mediator. That's what I'm saying. Husbands, we should stop saying, husbands, you're the priest of your home. Find another way to encourage them to be leaders in the home. Um, he's the head of the home. There's a term that I think is biblical that we'll get into in a future video in this series. Now, here's what it doesn't mean. Here's what being a priest doesn't mean. It means, you know, you have no mediator. It means you can come to God and you can offer yourself to him in full relationship with, with, with a cleansed heart and conscience. Your sins are dealt with and you can enter in, right? Here's what it does not mean. It doesn't mean anything about being an elder or in any particular ministry position. It just doesn't. None of those things are about teaching others. None of those things are about leading others. Eldership's not priestly in character is what I'm saying. Therefore, you being a priest has nothing to do with you being an elder because eldership's not mediating people to God. That's my point. I hope that made sense. Um, now, here's a challenge to my view that I can feel coming, and rightly so, right? Some would say, Mike, you said in a previous video that women couldn't be priests because in the Old Testament, um, in, the in the Levitical law, right, that women couldn't be priests, that this was because of gender issues. Yet, they're priests in the New Testament. Doesn't that mean they can have the highest roles representing God to people in church? Um, for this, we have to have, again, that good understanding of priesthood that I've just given you. So my response is, women are, um, well, let me see. Pastors and elders are not, uh, is not a priesthood. Therefore, it's irrelevant to the issue. What it, uh, what it does mean is this, right? You have no mediator between you and Christ. I've talked about that. What it doesn't mean is that every believer can be an elder because they're a priest. Eldership is different and a selective role. If being a priest is not enough to make you an elder, which it's clearly not, there's qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, then women being priests isn't enough to make a case for women being elders. It's that easy. I think this is actually very simple when we break it down. Um, priests did teach, but what was uniquely priestly was their function as mediators. That function doesn't exist in the body of Christ, or better put, it's given, um, it's given to all believers because we all equally come into the presence of God. So I hope that that helps. Um, it, bottom line is this. If we had zero qualifications in scripture for elders, we might think that the universal priesthood of believers qualifies everyone to be an elder. But how would the Holy Spirit keep you from thinking that priesthood equals eldership? That's by giving you specific qualifications beyond just being a Christian, which he did in First Timothy two, First Timothy three, and Titus chapter one, and in some other places as well. So, let's go to argument number four. The fourth argument we're covering today is the prophecy argument. The prophecy argument. Okay, this one goes like this: Women prophesied, 
And if women prophesied and prophecies this really high role, then it even includes authority, then surely women can be elders, they can teach, and they can be elders. Let me explain it in more detail, though, as we dig into what I think is one of the more challenging ones. These last two, the prophecy argument, the gifts argument, they're the ones that challenged me the most. And I think we have a lot to learn from them, even if you don't become egalitarian, which I don't think you should. I think the Bible's incredibly clear on this. Um, and I'm, I'm more convinced of that after having studied it in detail, some issues. When I study it more, I go, oh, wow, I really see why no one seems to agree on this topic, but, but not the women of ministry issue. I, I think it's much more clear than, than, than people um, realize. But I'm going to build the case for that as we go. So here's argument number four. Uh, first, let's acknowledge women did prophesy in the Bible, okay? Just a brief overview. In the Old Testament, Miriam prophesied. Huldah prophesied. Deborah prophesied. Isaiah's wife is called a prophet too. None of these women are looked at negatively in any of those respects. They all seem to be prophesying in a positive context, right? There was some women who were prophets who were bad, but we're not talking about them. God obviously was using women to prophesy. In the New Testament, we have examples of women prophesying. Before Jesus' ministry, in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is an infant, Anna, she is a prophetess. So she, she actually does prophesy. Um, let me see. I think I'm going to talk about that later. So I'll, I'll read that scripture to you in a bit. Yeah. Philip had seven daughters, Acts 21.9. Let me, I'll take you to this one. Seven daughters? I said four daughters. Philip had four daughters who prophesied, right? Acts 21.9. And First Corinthians 11, an interesting passage of scripture we will go over in detail later. But First Corinthians 11 gives rules about how women should prophesy in public Christian gatherings. Why is, why is that important? Because it meant women were prophesying and this was acceptable. Peter quotes Joel in Acts chapter 2 to talk about the nature of the, of the New Testament church. It says in the last days, it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Not just a select group, but kind of anybody could do it. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Um, even on my male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now, it's not like women didn't have the Holy Spirit, you know, empowering them in the Old Testament. The, the point is that this was meant to be the flavor of the New Testament church was, right, because we're all so close to God, like we're all priests, so that these amazing powers of gifts of the spirit would be functioning through anybody because we're all that close to God, because Jesus brings you that close to God. I think it's a beautiful thing. So what do we do with this info? That's, that's the debate. This is where the debate is. What do I do with this info? Um, egalitarians say that we can learn from this information that women prophesied that it follows three things follow. And these are three different things. We'll analyze each of them individually. Number one, prophecy shows that women could speak in public Christian gatherings to mixed groups of men and women. Plenty of people think this is not appropriate. They'll say, look, women were clearly doing this in the New Testament church, so we could, they could do it today. The second thing they'll say is that prophecy is similar to teaching, and it's similar enough to the type of thing teaching is that teaching should also be allowed. If a woman can prophesy and that contains elements of teaching, why can't she just be a teacher? Argument number three of what we do with this info is that prophecy is such a high level of authority. This is not about it including teaching. It's about authority now. Prophecy includes authority. When you prophesy, they have to listen, right? It's such a high degree of authority that eldership should also be allowed because prophecy equals or rivals, according to like say Craig Keener, it rivals eldership in the authority that it carries or implies. 
So we're going to go through each of these three arguments one at a time right now, and we'll analyze them for their merits, and we'll seek to, um, I'm not going to become egalitarian with these arguments, but I think there's balance, which is why I keep calling myself soft complementarian, because there's balance for many complementarians on these issues that we, we need to learn from. In my opinion, you should absolutely form your own opinion and honor the Lord to the best of your ability. This is a secondary issue, even though it's important, even though it affects lives in huge ways, it's, it's something that believers disagree on and without kicking each other out of the kingdom. So feel free to agree or disagree. Um, on number one, let's analyze the first claim. The first thing that we'll do with women prophesying is egalitarians say that prophecy shows women could speak in public Christian gatherings to mixed group of men and women. Here's my response. True. <laughs> um, this is uh, this is demonstrably true. I don't know how you would get around this at all. Uh, there's I, I, I see no way around the idea, no wiggle room <laughs> around the idea that women in the first century church with the approval of the leaders of the apostles, that they were speaking with their mouths to mixed groups of people, at least in the context of prophecy. So that's demonstrably true. Um, there's a complementarian, I think, an error that I will be discussing about these issues. This really comes down, though, to two passages, which I, I'll cover both of these passages in great detail later. But one of them I'll just put on your screen. 1 Corinthians 14, 34. This is probably the strongest one, where it says, uh, women should keep silent in the churches. Some complementarians, John MacArthur, chief among them, right, because he's so influential, I say chief among them, like he's, he's influencing a lot of people. Uh, he, in, is, to my understanding... Right, and I'll, I'll cover his commentary on this passage when I get to First Corinthians fourteen. Uh, he interprets this to mean like silent in the church, like you couldn't speak at all publicly to a mixed group of men and women, um, or at least very little. The way uh, I think that he's had no, I'm trying to remember. No, there's something I'm trying to remember right now, but I can't remember. Anyway, the the article I read, one of the articles I read from him this week, indicates he leans on this passage to say no. The women who were prophesying, even in the early church, they're really not prophesying to mixed groups of people because it says the women had to keep silent in the church. So he uses this verse to say that what you think those other verses are saying is not saying that. Now, that's that's an okay thing to do if if you're doing it properly. The question is, is that proper? First Timothy 2 will say that um, Paul says, I don't allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. We will cover that in great detail later. Massive, massive debates on that issue. I've spent... Um, 30 years studying it, and I'm ready to talk about it. <laughs> so I'll cover that all in detail. Just know that that the complementarian, the strong complementarian or the patriarchal side, they tend to depend on those two passages to refute the things that I'm sharing with you on this issue of prophecy. I don't think it works. I'll talk about that when I get to those two passages. For now, I'll cover the plain meaning of the text. So um, one complementarian response to this in addition to moving towards those other passages, is to say that women, when they did prophesy in the scriptures, and you may have heard this, they did so privately. They had private prophetic revelation, but not public. They weren't in front of groups of people. They weren't in front of especially mixed gender groups of people, men and women. Nothing like a Sunday morning gathering. Um, I think this is an error. Um, Holda, right? Holda, who was a prophet in the Old Testament, she gave instructions to the nation. Now, you might say, well, she wasn't at a big gathering of the nation, right? Well, she was at a gathering of leaders sent by the king who took her word and took it to the king to apply it to the entire nation. You cannot call this private prophecy. Like under, uh, like you're just, 
that's weird. <laughs> when she's giving instructions to the nation through the leaders, like that's a big deal. Deborah, Deborah prophesies in the Old Testament and she tells Barak about how she, how he is to uh, move around the military of the nation. So like you could say, well, but maybe only, only Barak was, he was the only one that was there. Barak heard her say the prophecy, but nobody else heard it. And then he carried it to the army. So it still has like this male authority. But I don't, I, at least I wouldn't call this a private prophecy because what, what Deborah's doing is something that is not affecting private individuals, but it's impacting a nation. So the, anyway, I'm just saying li this limita limitation seems uh, not, not real. First Corinthians 11 seems clearly, and I'll talk about this, a whole video on head coverings is coming in this series, but... 1 Corinthians 11 talks about this, uh, giving instructions to men and women about how they are to prophesy, where? In public gatherings with men and women present. I don't know how to read that passage any different. I think that this is, it, it's like really obvious, obviously that way. Just read 1 Corinthians 11. The whole section in 1 Corinthians is dealing with 11 through like 14 is dealing with Christian gatherings. Now let's talk about Anna. Luke chapter 2, another person who prophesied, and it was not just privately, or just to women. It's not on, it doesn't seem to even be on their minds that women can only speak prophetically to other women or not with men present or not at a religious gathering. Um, so Luke 2.36, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, uh, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84. So she's old. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, what was the hour? Jesus is being circumcised and two, a male and female prophet, both speak prophetically about him. Um, so coming at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, speak of either God or Jesus, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. In other words, Anna just started shouting. <laughs> She's prophetically shouting about about Jesus and prophetically proclaiming where a religious gathering at the temple. I don't see any problem with that. Um, I don't see how the more patriarchal or extreme positions. Now you can be a patriarchalist and you can say, oh no, prophecy is the exception. Okay, but at least at least say that. <laughs> um, yeah, let me um, look very briefly at First Corinthians eleven, and I'll tell you what John MacArthur says about it. Who I will disagree with here. First um, Corinthians eleven four and five. It says every man. Oh, on your screen too. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now I'm going to deal with head coverings. I will do an entire video on this topic. Tons of historical stuff to talk about. We will get into it. Okay. Here's what I want you to focus on if you if you don't mind at the moment. Men and women, okay, we know men prophesied in public Christian gatherings. There's nobody debating that. In the same context as men are told how they're to prophesy in these public Christian gatherings, women are told how they are to in these public Christian gatherings. This is strong evidence. Now, in response to this, John MacArthur says in a article, which I will link down below, it's about head coverings um, from... Um, uh, it's on gracetou.org, gty.org. I'll, I'll link the article down below. I'll, I'll have to make a note to do that. Um, okay, so he says the following. Perhaps 
you know, Paul has in view praying or prophesying in public places rather than in the worship of the congregation. What I want us to feel here is the, the tension, the difficulty of, of, of how it just seems so obvious that it's public. So John MacArthur's solution is to say, well, it's public places, but not Christian worship gatherings. And I'm like, I mean, just read the passage. He's like talking about prophecy. This is obviously a Christian gathering that is at least typically where it's going to take place. The primary application to 1 Corinthians 11 is a Christian gathering, a congregational gathering for worship. This is, it just seems very obvious. There's nothing in the context that says this. Nothing in the context of 1 Corinthians 11 says it's it's at a public place, but not a Christian congregational worship gathering like that just it doesn't make any sense i'm sorry um I'm, forgive me you guys i'm speaking in normal terms <laughs> about this the real thing the real reason and as you read if you read his article which i'll link below uh, is he thinks that first corinthians 14 34 where it says that women need to keep silent in churches he thinks that that means that they couldn't be prophesying like that in a worship gathering therefore first corinthians 11 doesn't mean that i think a better decision is to relook at 1 Corinthians 14, which we will do in a later video in this series, and explain why it doesn't mean when you take it out of context by itself, women keep silence in the churches. It's like you've, you've actually distorted the text by removing it from its context. And we'll talk about that. So if this instruction uh, does exclude a Christian gathering and it only refers to public places, now I'm going to give you several reasons why I, I reject this view. Why doesn't it specify that? Why doesn't Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 specify he's talking about public places but not Christian worship gatherings? A natural reading is that it's a general rule for gatherings of Christians. That's the natural reading. Not gatherings of a couple Christians but not, it, I don't even know what you call those things. Um, second reason I'd push back is prayer and prophecy were regular parts of Corinthian church gatherings. And Paul's giving instructions to the Corinthians on how prayer and prophecy is to take place. They're clearly about the church gatherings. Third reason why does this discuss how men are to conduct themselves in prayer and prophecy and then women in the same breath if if that's not about a Christian gathering? Uh, four, he concludes this section, Paul does. I'll go to I'll go to it right now, verse 16. This whole section, it's all one continuous section. He then talks about how he's basing his 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 um, words to them on universal church practice. We have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Hey, this is what all the churches are doing, so you guys should follow these rules too. Do you see that this is about church gatherings? Um, we can add more. Um, in, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, the greater context of the overall passage supports it being about public Christian mixed-sex gatherings. Chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, you should read that, but it's about the Lord's Supper. Same chapter, same book material, same context. It's about the Lord's Supper, which was clearly communion during a church gathering. The whole next section, chapter 12, all the way through 14, the whole chapter, is about spiritual gifts. And Paul focuses on those gifts taking place in church gatherings of mixed gender. So those are strong reasons. The very function of prophecy is also for public benefit. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul sa- verses 3 and 4, Paul says that the purpose of prophecy is, that, is for the benefit of others. The one who prophesies builds up the church. And he's talking about how prophecy will take place in 1 Corinthians 11. This is obviously for building up the church. We're not excluding those gatherings. In 1 Corinthians 14, verses 29 through 31, Paul talks about it again. 
He says, um, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. So my conclusion is this. Uh, John MacArthur's way of saying women didn't prophesy in public gatherings, even though they prophesied, or at least public Christian gatherings, but maybe other public gatherings that weren't worship gatherings. I think that this is artificial. And uh, let me quote him again. John MacArthur says in the same article, women may have the gift of prophecy, as did Philip's four daughters, but they are normally not to prophesy in the meetings of the church where men are present. That rule seems wrong. Now, some of you are cessationists, so you're thinking, well, there's no prophecy anyways right now. But let's pretend that there was, right? <laughs> As I think there is. Okay, I'm not a cessationist. Um, how limiting would it be? This would genuinely limit the work of the Spirit because I'm not using a rule that, the, that, the, that God has given us, but rather I'm basing all this off of 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Yeah, all of it. All of it. Off that one verse that seems clearly to be taken out of context as we'll get there when I analyze that verse later in the series. Scripture limits how women prophesy. It does not limit where or when they prophesy. That's what I read in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul's concern is how it happens, not when and where it happens. He's concerned about how. So you can see uh, the rules that Paul gives as going beyond just a church gathering. Maybe it applies to other public gatherings, but I can't see how anybody would limit 1 Corinthians 11 to only being about Christians gathering in public but not worship gathering of it doesn't make any sense yeah okay we'll do the next one um, okay let's analyze the second <laughs> I know this is long we'll analyze the second claim from compl from egalitarians saying that prophecy is similar to teaching and it's similar enough to teaching that women should be able to teach Christians in mixed gender church gatherings. That's the claim. <clears throat> okay, very soft complementarians tend to agree with this. I should mention that. This is not an only egalitarian view. Um, prophecy does, and, and I'll, I'll, in my own analysis of these things, I'm looking at prophecy, I'm looking at the way that prophets, prophets talk, the scriptures, terms. It says that all should prophesy so that all may learn and be encouraged. That's 1 Corinthians 14, 31. Well, we can obviously learn from prophecy. There's, there's a learning that takes place when someone prophesies. So my conclusion is prophecy does not rule out all elements of teaching. But why I don't go with this argument further is because prophecy is not teaching. And this argument effectively is trying to turn prophecy into teaching. But the Bible consistently keeps these in separate categories, and that can only be for good reason. Because prophecy, which may involve elements of teaching, is still in a category called prophecy. And teaching, which may involve sharing prophecies and details from prophecies, is not considered prophecy. Many people forget this nowadays. Sometimes teachers think they're doing everything. <laughs> Pastors are doing all the gifts. All the gifts flow from the pulpit, from the pastor, and their church just passively receives everything. I don't think that's the ideal. Um, so, prophecy is not teaching. We should not remove a biblical distinction between prophecy and teaching. And it's certainly not teaching like an elder does. These seem to be different things. So I can't too quickly go like some egalitarians do and go, well, if you could prophesy, prophesy, then you can teach. If you can teach, you can be an elder. I think that that is going too far too quick. So here's other considerations that we should think about. Is this teaching putting them in the role of elder in a functional sense? This would have to do with the context 
of the the amount of teaching that's coming out? Was it prophetically um, given by God? You know, what's going on here? Is the context of a woman teaching and the frequency she's teaching, is this putting her effectively into a functional role of an elder? And I know women who are complementarian who get invited to churches and they have to make tough choices about what they'll do and don't do because they're battling with the same concern. I know I'm not officially considered an elder right now, but I feel as though I'm stepping into that role and I don't think I'm supposed to. So we should, we should ask that because elder and prophet are not the same thing. Um, number two, is it only when a woman has direct revelation from God that she can teach? Because this is, this is the downside of this argument I don't hear anybody talking about. If I say a woman can teach because prophecy involves teaching, then you're, you're sort of limited to saying she can only teach when she has a direct revelation from God to share. Because that's the nature of prophecy or else it's not prophecy anymore. So your argument f falls apart. So some egalitarians are, are making a move that goes like this. And here's what I want to avoid. Prophecy involves teaching. Therefore, all teaching is acceptable. Therefore, prophecy equals eldership. And, and we're just blurring distinctions that God has given us. We should try not to blur those. Soft complementarian views would fit this data, right? Women can share a prophetic word from God that's totally allowed in mixed gender settings. But this shouldn't blur into the eldership title or function because that's also honoring what the Spirit has given us in, say, 1 Timothy 3 or other verses I've already covered before. I think that that is a, a safer view, a more accurate view, a more biblical view. On the third claim, the third claim of what egalitarians, well, some egalitarians want to do with the fact that women prophesied, they'll say that prophecy carries such authority, not teaching, but authority, that it rivals eldership even, or equals it at least. Therefore, if women can prophesy, they can have any other role that would be like a lesser authority role. Craig Keener develops this. Let me give you guys what he says. Craig Keener says, let us however grant for a moment the claim that some make that prophecy has ceased. Even if this claim were correct, it would not erase the record that in the biblical period, some women held an office more directly influential than offices now frequently denied them. Now, he uses the term influential here. Elsewhere, he does talk about authority. So I just want to be careful. I hope maybe I grabbed the, didn't grab the best quote to represent that view. Um, um, but let's take the influence perspective here. He says, it, so if Keener is right, if Dr. Keener is right, and prophecy gave women an office more influential than that of elder, does that mean they should be able to be elders? Let me push back on that view a little bit. First question is this, what if influence is not the only issue to be weighed? What if influence is not the only issue? Because I don't know how many complementarians, certainly none I would agree with, are putting forward the case that we have to limit the influence women can have on people. That's a weird form of complementarianism and to push against it is to push against at least a view that I don't care about and a view that doesn't affect my own perspective on things. So what if influence isn't the only issue here? I don't think it is. It would be a strange and painful form of complementarianism that said women couldn't be influential. Deborah was influential. Mary Magdalene was influential. Priscilla was influential. Phoebe was influential. And may I add, in all the ways those women were influential, the Bible likes it. <laughs> and I like it. And it should be a good thing. So any over here, right? Any complementarian who's stronger or patriarchalist who says that women should not be influential is wrong. And Craig Keener's pushing back on that with prophecy as an evidence. And I think that's appropriate. Okay. 
That's right. Do not be allergic to women having influence. Do not be intimidated by women having influence. This is where you get the reputation of being an insecure man. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Like, I want Christian women to have more influence, not less. I want all Christians to have more influence, not less. I think that's a good thing. Don't be allergic to women having influence. But if the issue is about eldership, then it's not just about influence. It's about a specific kind of authority role and not a degree of influence. You see, I'm not an elder at your church, but I have more influence than your elder, at least at least most likely if they don't have like an online ministry that has like wide reaching impact. And I think that we, we recognize these things differently, but you would not submit to me the way you submit to the elders in your church, would you? Right? Because influence is not the same as eldership. Do you get that? When, when, when we vote for someone to be the governor of the state of wherever you live, you're voting for them to have massive influence. But they're not the elder of your church, and they might not even be qualified to be the elder of your church. They might not even be Christian. So you see these are just different things. We're blurring distinctions, and that's what I'm seeing a lot in the egalitarian side here is just conflating ideas. So if it's about a th certain kinds of authority roles, not every authority role, because women should not be denied every authority role, but certain specific kinds like eldership, then the argument means little. Eldership does have requirements other than able to influence. <laughs> um, it has greater requirements than prophe prophecy. Let me Now, let me elaborate how eldership, I'm going to give you a big list, is very different than prophecy. Anybody who got a word could prophesy. You could get saved and five seconds later have God give you something to share and you share it with others and you're prophesying to the congregation five seconds after salvation. But you cannot do an, be an elder five seconds after you get saved. Um, only qualified and appointed people, men in particular, can be elders, biblically speaking. They can't be a new believer. They have to have good character and good reputation. They have to have good home leadership. They have to have an ability to teach. There's a list of other things. They can't be like given over to wine or much wine. Um, <clears throat> they, they have to be male as well. See video number four in this series, playlist below, if you want to hear me talk about quali qualifications for elders. So the fact that eldership has different qualifications than prophesy, prophesying, that means that you can't just say if someone can prophesy, they can eld. <laughs> Is that a term? All right. So elders have greater authority also than those who prophesy. The eldership role is actually very different than prophecy. Prophecy itself has authority, but the prophet, it's not the same. The prophet doesn't carry the kind of authority an elder has. Let me give you biblical proof for this claim. So elders have greater authority than those who prophesy because one, elders govern the church. Elders are appointed in every church. Prophets are not appointed in any churches. Anybody who prophesies can just do it because there's no appointment needed because it's not really an ongoing office with authority in the local church. This means that prophesying doesn't carry authority until it's ratified by others. In fact, that's one of the rules. Um, elders govern the church. Prophets don't. They're not part of the government of the church. Bethel, you hear me? <laughs> prophets. Your church does not need an official position of prophet and they help govern the church. Like that's just not a biblical thing. Elders are the governors of the church. So prophets don't carry that kind of authority. Um, prophecy is tested. Teaching is not. <clears throat> uh, let me be careful with this. Let me, first I'll just encourage you, check out 1 Corinthians 14, 29 or 1 John 4, 1. These two passages that will remind you that prophecy was tested. Now there's rules in scripture to summarize. Every time someone speaks prophetically, you don't just receive it and run with it. You actually run it through the leadership and they test it. Hmm, are we receiving that as from God or not? We're going to run through discernment now 
and we will accept or reject that prophetic claim. The person who prophesied was not part of the process of evaluating their own prophecies. So if you have a rule in place, here's what we can learn. If you have a rule in place that every prophecy is going to go through a testing process, it means something profound about the authority of the person who prophesied. It means that prophesying does not carry authority. It's the prophecy that carries authority and only after it's been ratified by others in the church with discernment. Do you get that? I mean, now you can test teaching. You could say, well, you're supposed to test teaching too. Although the test all things passage you're thinking of, 1 John 4, 1, is about more like prophecy. But you can you can test things, but we aren't meant uh, we aren't meant to test elders before we receive their teachings in that sense, test their teachings. What we do is we approve men who are affirmed into those positions who already have good theology so that we know that their teachings will be good. Why? Because we've instilled in them an authority to proclaim these truths. So we, we test the man, not the teaching. That's the interesting thing about eldership. You've tested the man so that the teaching will be pure. Prophecy, anyone can do it. You test the prophecy. There's a big difference. The teaching office of elder carries authority that someone who prophesies does not have. That's my pushback on, on Dr. Keener's point here. Um, another way that prophecy is more limited than teaching is that prophecy is passive. The nature of prophecy is passive. Let me, I can quote Dr. Keener here for support on this point, but let me explain it first. Um, the prophet is not supposed to speak beyond what God gave them at the time. So they're not supposed to just come in and offer their best judgment on an issue. An elder does that. The prophet is not supposed to speak beyond the words God gave them. And an example of this, Dr. Keener points out, is Nathan the prophet, who when Nathan went to King David, and David said, oh, I'm going to build a, a temple for the house of God. I'm going to build God a house. It's, it's, he's in this tabernacle, but I want to build him a glorious house. And Nathan's like, David, do all that's in your heart. Here's the prophet of God saying, go do all that's in your heart. And God tells Nathan, go back to him. Did I tell you to say that? You go back to him and you tell him he's not going to do it. His son's going to do it. He's a man of blood. Right? God's not going to establish his kingdom with, with killing. He's going to establish it with sacrifice, with Jesus offering himself. Beautiful picture there. Here's what Dr. Keener says about this. In any case, prophets of either gender had no authority outside of their message. Nathan, for example, had to retract his counsel to David when he discovered it contradicted what the Lord was actually saying. Now, Dr. Keener doesn't apparently make the argument that um, prophecy is very authoritative. Therefore, if women can prophesy, they can be elders too, because that's authoritative but in a lesser sense. But other egalitarians do make that argument. So I'm not here pushing back against Dr. Keener. I'm using his work to push back on others. <laughs> um, the claim that prophecy is authoritative, therefore women can be elders because they can prophesy. This doesn't work because prophecy and eldership are very, very different things. As Dr. Keener has pointed out here, it's a passive thing where you receive a word from God. You don't even need any requirements. You don't need any callings. You don't need any special appointment. You share it. They test it. And then they receive the word. You aren't even in an authority place even after your prophecy was approved. So this is a very important complementarian idea I'm going to share next. And it pushes back on the connection prophecy equals elder. Um, there are limits in scripture on women prophesying. I'm only going to mention this here. I'll go into much detail later on. But in scripture, there's, women, there's limits on uh, how and what way women prophesy. They're only supposed to do so while acknowledging male headship or at least a husband's headship. I'll get into the debate there later. 
as a general rule. First Corinthians 11, read through it on your own and realize there's there are gender issues that God cares about even when he allows women to prophesy. Um, you, you can subscribe, check out the playlist below. If it's been like a couple months, it'll already be out. They can prophesy, women can prophesy also, but are not to judge the prophecies given. First Corinthians 14, I will go over this in detail in the future, but I'm saying even within the realm of prophecy, there's different, there's gender differences that are important to God to, to observe, possibly, so we won't do what egalitarians are doing and misinterpret women prophesying as meaning something different than what it does. So if that's the case, then even when prophesying, women had worthwhile limitations. Why? Right? To keep them from bridging from prophecy into a regular authority role in the body of Christ over men and women, at least of eldership seems to be the case. So my point is this. While women prophesying freely, conclusion on this section, right? It does push back against a view that women can't speak in a public gathering to mixed genders. It totally pushes back against that view. No speaking while we're gathered on the Lord's Day. I, I don't think that that's the right way to draw the line. So it does push back. Um, it does not give us reason to reject all restrictions in regards to eldership or holding spiritual authority over the church in general. This is because restrictions on prophecy are meant specifically to keep the activity of women prophesying from turning into those very things. So I think the egalitarians go far too far on these issues with prophecy, but many complementarians need correction for limiting women too much. I will talk, I'm going to do a whole video on application. It'll be my summary video. Everything I've, you know, one video later on down the road. Here's a summary of everything and application, practical application in our lives. What can women do or not do? I know it's a burning question, but I want to establish all the scriptures first so that we are getting a full and robust understanding of the word of God. And then I'll bring more application. Um, number five. Number five. Last argument for today. The gifts argument. And it goes like this. This is how the gifts argument goes. God gifts women with all the same spiritual gifts as men. Therefore, they should be able to do all the same ministries. That's how the argument goes. And this, to me, is the strongest argument we will be challenging today. We will be looking at today. <laughs> and we can learn a lot from it. And, it is, and if you're like me, it will, it will not make you egalitarian, but it will soften your complementarianosity. That's a word. Don't look it up. Somebody add it to the dictionary real quick for me. Oh, yeah, they only do that. They only do that for certain people. Um, all right, so if gifts, here's how the argument goes. If gifts are for the common good, then you can't limit the expression of a woman's gifts to certain audiences. This is a, an argument from uh, Philip Payne, and I'll put it on your screen. Um, we're going to tackle several arguments along these lines. But let's get started. All right. Those excluding women from church leadership either assume, here's one thing they'll assume, according to Philip Payne, uh, an egalitarian scholar, they assume that God never gives women certain gifts of the Spirit, such as teaching and administration, or alternatively, and we'll, we'll tackle these separately, they restrict the use of those gifts, even though Paul explains that the gifts are for the common good. All right. There seems to be, like I said, two different points here. One point is, at least some women have the gifts mentioned in the New Testament, like teaching and leadership. I'm going to agree with that. I, I think there's women who are gifted in leadership based upon my reading of the New Testament. Now, I, I also agree, why would God give you a gift he doesn't want you to use? But I'm not going to go where egalitarians, egalitarians go with it 
So we'll talk about that. The second issue is um, that someone who has a gift of teaching or leadership is wrongly restricted if they can't perform that action, teaching and leadership, for adult men. This is because, according to Philip Payne, and he quotes 1 Corinthians 12, 7, gifts are, quote, for the common good. I thoroughly disagree with this argument, and I'll talk about that, well, one at a time. Let's do the first one first. Are women gifted with teaching and leadership? Let's run through some of the passages that talk about the gifts of the Spirit, and we'll try to see if there's any gender differences that we're noticing here. So Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Sorry about all the underlines. Man, what, what is that? Why is that? As soon as I log off, I'll go, oh, it's obvious. It's this little button. But I don't, I don't, I don't know. I shouldn't click things while I'm live. I don't know what that did. All right. Um, here we go. First Corinthians. Wait, where are we? Romans 12, 5 um, or 12, 6. Yeah, 6 through 8. I'm back. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Here Paul's talking about our gifts, right? We have different gifts. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, women have that. If service and our serving. Nobody would doubt women have that. The one who teaches in his teaching. That one's the one we're going to debate on, right? The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. We're going to debate that one too. And the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now that word leadership, most translations that I've, the few I surveyed, I surveyed a few. Um, and a few different lexicons. They think this word lead does mean leadership. It could be used of like the captain of a ship, right? So it, it really means leadership. It could also mean just helping people. So like you're just aiding, I'm just assisting others. So it could mean either one, um, but there seems to be general agreement that in the context of these verses, it means leadership. Now, when I see general agreement on an issue where everyone debates everything, I usually don't keep looking. So I didn't look further into that because if there was a, a way around that, I, I think people would be trying to use it. Um, but that first text, what are we getting? leads and teaches are gifts of the spirit. The other, every other gift on that list is one that we would say women could have. It would seem to be the case. And Paul's case here in Romans 12 is, hey, if you have a gift, use it. This is a big deal. It's a big deal. Now, there's obviously other questions that have to be asked. Unless you're really thinking kind of shallow about the topic, you know immediately. Okay, but leading and teaching in what context? Leading and teaching in what ways? We'll talk about that. I'm just saying these things seem to be gifts. Let's look at another verse. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Um, I would not artificially limit women from having those gifts. And I think that it would do harm if we try. Oh, these horrible highlights. Logos, what did you do? What did I do? I've got to find the button that gets rid of these things. <laughs> oh, it hurts. Um, okay. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. That's one category. These are groups of people he's appointed. Then, and now it talks about gift type things, miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating. There's that word again, leading. And various kinds of tongues. So Paul mixes offices and activities here. Uh, the first three are offices, apostles, prophets, teachers. Okay, they're appointed in the church. They're about foundation laying and stuff like that that happened in the first century in particular. People try to carry that forward, but I, I think that teachers are the primary need. That's why they're appointed in every church, whereas apostles and prophets are not. I think they're the primary need of the church after, after the initial uh, church planting phase that happened in, in the New Testament time. Then miracles, then gifts of healing, help administrating, helping, excuse me, administrating various kinds of tongues. So... 
the teaching part isn't really a gift here. It's more of an office. But the leadership thing that's in the word administrating, that seems to be a gift. Perhaps anybody could have that. Let's look at now. I will also acknowledge here's a gifts area, or you know, that some people will quote to say, see, women have this gift too. Yet there were only male apostles, and certainly the ones that he's talking about when he says first appointed apostles, there were only males, at least in that initial group, even if you want to debate um, Andronicus and Junia. Um, so, yeah, there may still be some gender things going on there, but, but I, I think the gift of administration, at least here, I wouldn't see a reason to limit that from women, but we can add more scripture for more clarity. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets and the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. That's actually kind of one group of people, not two. It's like pastor teacher. Here I'm thinking of an elder. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ until we all attain um, to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And you can read on. Um, so, this doesn't really appear. This one, while it is a spiritual gift passage, you might think it's relevant to our topic. Um, it doesn't seem applicable to the question of whether women are gifted in teaching or leadership specifically, because it's talking about here, elders, ultimately, I believe. So I'm not going to, it's not talking about gifts, it's talking about offices here in this particular phrase. So again, I don't want to overstep the text of scripture. So we'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 11. Here, I think we have a little more applicable section for to one is given through the spirit of utterance as through the spirit, the utterance of wisdom. So through the spirit, some people have an utter, a word of wisdom, another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same spirit to another faith by the same spirit to another gifts of healings by the one spirit to another, the working of miracles to another prophecy, which we know women have to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits to another, various kinds of tongues to another interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who appoint apportions to each one individually as he wills. What can I learn here? Um, you'll notice that teaching and leading are not mentioned on this list, but several speaking gifts are word of wisdom, word of knowledge, prophecy, interpretation of tongues. It would seem arbitrary to say that women prophesied publicly at these gatherings, as I think I've demonstrated, but they didn't have a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, or an, or a, an interpretation of a tongue. That would seem very arbitrary. So this seems to me to be evidence that those things, those speaking gifts, can be given to women as well. Okay, I, I, I'm trying to build a careful case because what seems obvious to a lot of us will be pushed back by others. So I want to be thoughtful. Um, I'll deal with the whole women keep silent thing for Corinthians 14 later on. I'll need you to test me on that. Just kind of keep that in your mind. Let me examine Mike's case here, why he doesn't think it means what, say, John MacArthur thinks it means. Um, but let's go to 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11, another relevant passage. Talking about the gifts. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Here, speaking of any kind is taken as just speak as oracles of God. You know, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory forever and dominion forever. Uh-oh, what's this? Ooh, Sarah's going to tell me how to fix this thing. Logos, click visual filter icon. Is that 
logos. Give me, show me the ah, visual filter icon. <laughs> and the three dots triangle. Oh no, it doesn't have a three dots triangle there. It's like a new version of logos. <laughs> no, I just got rid of footnotes. I like footnotes. How do I, I get those back? Okay, I'm going to fix this later. <laughs> Sarah, your instructions are probably fine. I'm just not able to focus on it while I'm doing all this other stuff. And I can't, I can't find the footnotes thing. Okay, this is, this is, okay, I need to focus on one thing. I better just do that. Thank you for trying, though. Man, I would love to get rid of these horrible underlines. Um, so whoever speaks, the, this is a speaking thing. And it's like whoever's doing it, do it, you know, with the, the, the strength that God supplies. Do it as the oracles of God, that kind of thing. All speaking gifts would probably be included in whoever speaks. So prophecy, interpretation of tongues, teaching, word of wisdom, word of knowledge. The point is those gifts are meant to be used. They're not meant to stay dormant. So here's my, my I'm going to sound egalitarian here, but I'm not. Uh, women who are gifted in teaching should be using that gift. I talked to a pastor on the phone, a friend who called me and was like, Mike, what do you think I should do? I got this woman. She's amazing teach, at teaching. She's really good. And I was like, well, don't cross any boundaries that you're aware of biblically, but find a way for her to use that gift because gifts are there to be used. You know, Find a way to express that gift in a way that honors any limitations that God has given us. And I think that that is what we should do. I think we should be seeking to express those gifts and find usage for those gifts. That's the purpose. Um, so here's an example. I'm a pastor, as you guys know. Um, I've been doing ministry for well over 20 years. But I was ordained as a pastor in 2006. And I was ordained to be the pastor who focused on youth ministry. Now, I did other things, but I focused on youth ministry. I served as a youth pastor at the same church for 13 years. And I was serving in the youth ministry for years before that, too. So primarily, my focus was youth ministry. Now, I would guest teach for men's ministry, uh, do something for children's ministry, uh, maybe teach occasionally. And I mean like once a year, maybe, teach in the sanctuary for the mixed gathering on Sunday morning. But I never functioned as a senior pastor. Now, most of you assume I have. I never told you that, so forgive me if you assume that. Um, but yeah, like I had a gift I was expressing, but I didn't. I didn't express it as the senior pastor, which at least in a Calvary Chapel environment like I was in, really the only guy doing the job that you would see as an elder job in the New Testament with its full description is the senior pastor. Um, in many Calvary chapels, he's the only guy who's making all those decisions. Everybody else is maybe a counselor making some decisions in smaller spheres, but he's the one who's making the decisions for like most everything that a group of elders you might normally expect to have making decisions. So I've, in a sense, I've only fulfilled like 70% of the biblical elder role, maybe in my entire ministry life. Even though I'm a pastor, it's confusing because we make our roles a little confusing in modern churches. Do you think my gifts have been limited? That I've been unable to express my service to God? I'd be like, no. I was perfectly happy doing those things. I, was, I would prefer to be in college and young adults and, and youth ministry most of the time over being in the sanctuary. So I was perfectly happy to do that. Um, and it affected me and it helped train me for the things I'm doing now in many ways. So I don't think that's a problem. I don't think you can say that if a woman can't express a gift in an eldership role, then therefore she can't express it at all. So the basic principle I think is this. Gifts don't seem gender specific. I don't see any indications that they are. Therefore, they seem to apply to men and women. So leadership and teaching could be gifts a woman would have. I don't, I don't see a problem with that. 
Um, they do seem generally applied to all Christians. Prophecy, anybody could do that. Why would you say teaching she couldn't? Now, against this, you could say, well, but the apostles were all men in the relevant, in the relevant sense of the 12 of the high up apostles. But apostles, not a gift like the others. It's merely an office. And so this, of course, strengthens the idea that you might have a gift in teaching or leadership, but that doesn't mean you get any office in the church, like eldership. Offices and, and gifts are different. You can teach without being an elder. Surprise. <laughs> a lot of people do. Most, most Christians who are gifted in teaching are not elders at their church. That's not a problem. They express that gift in different ways. So... Um, I don't know how many complementarians might say women can't teach, like they're not gifted in teaching or leadership. Um, I wouldn't say that, and I, I hope they don't. But I don't think scripture limits that to men. And I think it strongly indicates that women have it too. So let's go to the second rung of the gifts argument. And this is a more challenging part. It says, if a woman has the gift of leading or teaching, it's supposed to be, according to 1 Corinthians twelve seven, quote, for the common good. For everybody, therefore, you can't rightly restrict women by excluding her a, a woman from teaching that gift in front of that mixed gathering of men and women. And um, we're going to look at First Corinthians twelve seven. Uh, let me make sure that I yeah okay I have it a little bit later on. Let's look first at some other verses that might relate to this to kind of serve as defeaters to show you that that's not how the Bible's handling these issues. So first. Uh, excuse me, Titus chapter two, verse three. It says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good. I mean, here's more evidence that women might have a gift at teaching. She's able to teach what is good. But here, the purpose of the teaching, the realm of the teaching is to train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God might not be reviled. So we want strong, godly character um, in Christian homes, and we're looking at older women to teach younger women, this is a biblical case for women's ministry. That women, you're not supposed to only learn from men, especially things that are very, very relevant to being a woman, right? Like, how am I supposed to teach you about what it means to be a woman? Like, you, you, should, you should probably look to godly women to teach you those things. This is be a great spot for the gift of teaching to, to take place in explaining and explaining and teaching those things. I'm not saying it's the only place it can happen. I'm just giving you an example it doesn't require the office of elder for someone to have a, a teaching ministry in some sense. This is a limited but important teaching ministry. I've had that kind of thing for most of my ministry life, teaching high school week after week after week after week in a limited way, perfectly content to do it. Only online did my ministry start having this larger, much wider reach on a regular basis. That's just the reality. I served there and I was fine doing it. I am think there's probably a lot of really wonderful teaching pastors who are not the senior pastor, the regular Sunday pastor of their church. And they shouldn't feel like they're being muzzled in their gifts either. We're not in this for um, our, our position and our rising up in the ranks. Colossians 3.16, it says the following. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We'll talk about this in more detail later. Um, this will be the last verse we cover today, but I'll mention it. Uh, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. In general, the idea here is that, that, you know, just Christians are supposed to teach and admonish each other. Women seem included in that, right? Well, they're certainly singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness. Why aren't they teaching and admonishing one another? Outside, here's my point. Outside the role of elder, yes, anybody can teach anybody and admonish anybody. And men should be receiving from women without a problem. 
Women shouldn't be like, oh, I overheard this guy saying something weird about this doctrine and I, I know the right, the truth about it, but I, I feel like I shouldn't tell him because I'm kind of stepping out of my role as a woman. I'm like, no, you're not stepping, you're, you're, you're not stepping out of anything. You can tell him just like Priscilla told Apollos when his theology was wrong. You can tell him. And if he gets angry because you're a woman talking to him, um, that's just him exposing his own issues. It has nothing to do with you. That's just poor theology and practice. Romans 12, verses 6 through 18, through 8, excuse me. This is also relevant. We've talked about Romans 12, but we'll mention it again. Um, actually, I don't think I will mention it again. Let me just list, though, these things. So prophecy, I'll put it on your screen. Prophecy, service, teaching and exhortation, giving, leading and acts of mercy are all listed six gifts are miss are, are listed in romans 12 verses 6 through 8. we know women prophesied we know they were in service we know they were in giving we know right we actually have lists of women who gave we know they were in acts of mercy so it seems arbitrary to say they weren't in in teaching and exhortation and they weren't in leading right why is it arbitrary because they were part of everything that's that is listed there other than those two at least we're confident they were. Women are told to teach in some capacities in the Bible. My conclusion is this. You don't have to have some reason. Uh, what? Hold on. Whatever I wrote in my notes didn't make sense <laughs> to my brain. My conclusion is this. <laughs> Forget my notes. Um, it would be completely arbitrary and seemingly contradicting some clear passage of scripture to think that women simply never can lead or teach. I'll add to this my own little side thing, which is I've seen women who are gifted at teaching and gifted at leadership by any any reasonable measure of those things. The question I only have is what realms should those things take place? And just like my own ministry has only ever taken place in certain realms, and I'm okay with that, I don't see why this is such a horrible problem. The bottom line is that not everyone who teaches is actually an elder. An elder has to be able to teach, but but the scripture doesn't say everyone able to teach should be an elder. It doesn't say that because it's not true. Most people in the Christian church who are able to teach are not elders. An elder must be able to teach, but able to teach must not be an elder. So it's necessary again, but not sufficient. Some egalitarians will say that a woman is being kept from serving God according to her gifting if she's not allowed to be an elder. But there's usually more, again, there's more people who are gifted in teaching and are not elders than there are people who are elders. So that means every church out there is, is, is um, limiting the, the usefulness of the people in the body and has been since the first century. It just doesn't really work. Your teaching gift can be expressed in many, many ways without that role. And maybe it was only, only with women. Or maybe only with with men, but not in gatherings. Maybe individual conversations, and that's fine. I'm just saying these are at least options on the table. We'll tackle later exactly what restrictions should be there and women teaching, say, at a, at a Bible college or seminary, things like that. We'll, we'll tackle more of that in detail as we go. So we should not presume that everyone gifted in teaching is to teach in the same environments. 1 Corinthians also seems to affirm this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. Notice how Paul talks about the gifts. It's like he doesn't expect them all to be expressed in the same way. Just because you have the gift of teaching doesn't mean you're all teaching in the same environment. He says there are varieties, keyword, varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So Paul doesn't look at the church and go, elders, not elders. 
those are the those are the varieties right it, instead it's just the church is this organism with all kinds of variety going on and people with gifts who express them in different ways and that's a good thing this is one reason why as a as a ministry guy for many years I, I wonder about ministry positions like youth pastor, um, children's ministry director, hospitality leader, leader or whatever, you know. I wonder about these positions because sometimes these positions started because somebody was gifted in that particular way. So they made a position for that person. Now I'm going to function as the youth pastor. And then what happened is that person left and now they're just going to find somebody, no matter what their gifts are, and cram them into that role instead of shaping the role around the gifts. Um, over time, I've come to think that in ministry, side issue here, nothing to do with women in ministry, we should consider shaping roles after gifts and that those of us in leadership should look at people and go, wow, you're really good at ABC. What if we combine those into a ministry for you? And I think that might be a, a good way to approach the organic gifting that the Holy Spirit has in people's lives for appointing them to ministry, not just putting people into existing roles, looking at people, knowing their gifts and figuring out a role for them. I like that. I think that's a good idea. I think we should do that. Um, okay. I mean, Hey, that's what I'm doing right now. Do you realize that this online ministry is shaped after whatever gifts that it seems I'm the best at? That's what I'm trying to do the most to be of the greatest benefit to the body of Christ. I mean, that, that's kind of what my ministry is. All right. Um, where was I? We just did Second Corinthians, First Corinthians twelve six. Okay, First Corinthians twelve seven. Uh, this will will tackle then. Um, the claim from Philip Payne, which was right here in the second highlighted portion on your screen, it says they restrict the use of those gifts, even though Paul explains the gifts are for the common good. Philip Payne's point here is, hey, you can't tell a woman not to use her gift in this environment because gifts are for the common good. So they're supposed to be used in like the widest possible environment. Is that really what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians twelve seven when he used the phrase common good? Um to each, each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. That would imply that every gift Paul listed is supposed to be conducted Sunday morning in front of the entire body. But he's, but Paul didn't even list gifts here. He's just talking about every possible ministry. Hey, there's tons of gifts, tons of different services, tons of different activities. And what's happening for seven is Philip Payne is using this to, to mean the opposite of what Paul meant. And say there's tons of gifts, but there's one particular way in which they all have to take place. That's Sunday morning in front of everybody. And I'm like, eh, nah, eh. He just meant it was supposed to benefit others. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, he's just talking about gifts are for helping other people. That's his point. Not about your, um, your clout or your attention on yourself or your sense of respect. Uh, there's also another egalitarian argument that ministry flows from gifts and that if women are gifted in teaching and leadership, therefore they should have the ministry position that is about teaching and leadership. This argument I want to explain to you by quoting an egalitarian. This is uh, St uh, Stanley Gens again. He says, Grenz again? He says, the in integral relation between gifts and ministry leads to the general principle that the church must give place for the giftedness of all persons, whether male or female, 
Now, Stanley develops this argument in detail in Discovering Biblical Equality, like page 323 is where you find this quote. He, he explains it in a lot more detail. I don't have time to go over all of his arguments. But I think it, at the bottom line, he's presuming two things. One is that teaching and leadership can only find true expression if you function as an elder. I disagree with that. I think you can be gifted in teaching and leadership, and that can function in a variety of ways, just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 or six and five and four. I think that it can function in a variety of ways. I've seen it in ministry in real life. There are people, you know, we've had people who run, uh, you know, food ministries and you're like, and we've even called them pastor. And I'm like, are you really a pastor? Like you're not functioning in the biblical sense of elder, but you are, you are leading, right? There's a leadership function that's there. It's just outside that realm of, of pastors. People who function with a teaching gift that are not inside the role of elder in their church, they, but they teach in many other ways. And so I, I think that we just, we push things on that. The second thing that it presumes, that this argument, hey, if you're gifted in leading and teaching, you have to be allowed to be an elder. The second thing it presumes is that gifts are the only requirement for eldership. And again, scripture absolutely comes against that, I believe. If you think anybody with X gift should be in X ministry position, I think you're wrong for the very premise of, of the eldership requirement was able to teach. It's not everyone who teaches is an elder. It's like, hey, among those who have the ability to teach, you may select an elder. Do you see how the teaching is not enough, right? Gifts are not the only requirement for eldership. What if there are other factors, right? The gift, teaching and gifting is, is, is a, a factor, but it's not the only factor in eldership. The reason uh, this is important is because 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1 specifically give other factors beyond having gifts. And those factors include being male. I believe this. I went over it in video number four. You guys are welcome to, I've seen people try to push back. I don't think those pushbacks work so far. In my opinion here, I think the case is very solid and it stands. So let me summarize the gifts info. Here, here's the summary of all of today's content from today's video, and then I'm going to give you a preview of what we're doing next week. So here's the summary in case I lost you in some of the details. Women can be, um, oh, no, no, this is the summary of the, the gifting info, not the video info. Okay, I, I'm just, it, it's a long, there's a lot, it's a long day. I, I'm going to edit this out. No, I'm not. I'm too lazy. All right. This is the summary of the gifts info because I spent so much time on this one argument. Women can be gifted in leadership or teaching. That seems likely because the passages that speak of those gifts seem to apply to both sexes. Number two, any limitation on who can get those gifts is not indicated in scripture. There's no specific place where it says no, they don't get those gifts. You would need scripture to make that claim. Number three, limitations on women teaching and leading are not without qualification. It's specifically leading over men in the role of elder in particular. So if women weren't gifted in those things at all, there would be no need to allow for them to teach or lead in other contexts. If you can teach and lead outside the role of elder without the teaching and leading gifts, how does that make any sense? Okay. Number four, we have anecdotal evidence from all of our lives that women are gifted in those areas. But here's where I push back on the egalitarians. Why doesn't that translate to women being elders? Number one, the role of teaching elder is not the same thing as having a gift in teaching. One can lead and teach <clears throat> or lead and teach or just teach in countless ways outside of eldership. Elders aren't the only people who do ministry in the church. Sometimes we act this way and we think this way and we are gravely mistaken because then we dump all the responsibilities of the church on the pastor and then we get upset at them because they're not filling all our needs. 
So you can argue that um, any limits on how a gift can be expressed are wrong, but I don't follow that. Um, I think that the Holy Spirit has limited things. Number two, why it doesn't translate to eldership. Women are kept from that role specifically, not in relation to their gifts or abilities, but in relation to their gender. That is, gifting isn't sufficient to appoint an elder. There are other requirements, and gender seems to be one of them. Number three, that's video number four in detail. Number three, only if gifting is the only issue can gifting alone be a reason to appoint someone gifted to eldership. But it's not. Let me give you a reference to push back on some complementarians, many who need to hear this. This is from a fellow complementarian, Tom Schreiner, who says the following. In many respects, I agree with egalitarians here. Sometimes complementarians have given the impression that women are unintelligent and that they lack any ability to teach. Such a view is clearly mistaken. For some women unquestionably have the spiritual gift of teaching. Men should be open to receiving biblical and doctrinal instruction from women. Otherwise, they are not following the humble example of Apollos, who learned from Priscilla and Aquila. Moreover, women should be encouraged to share what they've learned from the scriptures when the church gathers. The mutual teaching recommended in 1 Corinthians 14.26 and Colossians 3.16 is not limited to men. Sometimes we men are more chauvinistic than biblical. But let me add this, because I think what Schreiner may have left out in the very last sentence there is that this doesn't just come from men. If we think that the attitude that women like can't even correct a man or something, that that's coming just from men, like we're being, what's the opposite of chauvinistic? We're being, we're being, um, what is there? There's gotta be a word for this. How do I not even know this? This is how much we only think about men being biased against women and we never think about women being biased against women or women being biased against men. Um, we don't even remember the words for those things. So there are tons of women out there who just as strongly as men think that women should not be able to correct a man. And I think that we need to correct that attitude. Women do not lack the ability to teach. Women do not lack the ability to understand theology or communicate it to others. Men should receive it from them if they do. Women are not unintelligent or otherwise incapable. All right, let's look at a final egalitarian argument and we'll, then I'll summarize all of today's video very quickly. Because I found in this series that people don't, don't remember the summaries unless I give them pretty carefully. So I'll do that at the end here. Um, so final egalitarian argument is Colossians 3.16. This comes from Philip Payne and I will show you the passage. He's going to use this to say that every woman should have a teaching ministry. You heard me right. <laughs> okay, all right, here we go. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, let, let me, side note, some of, some of you, very few of you, some of you have accused me of, of like misrepresenting egalitarians, although you have not given any quotes to prove that I have, because <laughs> I've asked. Um, or you've said, you're only sharing the worst of the arguments. And I'm like, I know, see, I've been reading so much of the literature, I'm like, I know that that's not true. What I'm sharing with you is a real argument really presented by an egalitarian. And when people hear these things, they really do change their minds. And this is a bad reason to change your mind. So here's what Philip Payne says about that argument. In his own words, Paul's prayer in Colossians 3.16 is that all Christians, women as well as men, will have a teaching ministry. There's the verse again. Anybody on earth 
can tell the difference between teaching and admonishing one another and having a teaching ministry, which is what Payne is arguing for in his book, that women can be in the highest teaching ministry roles in the church. But if you were to take Colossians 3.16 to mean that every person should have a teaching ministry, you also have to think everyone should have a worship ministry. Because he also tells them to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I'll tell you what, I've heard some of you sing. You should not have a singing ministry. You should not have a public worship ministry. This is clearly distorting the text of scripture in very obvious ways. It's high in rhetoric. It convinces people who don't think deeply about the text. Forgive me, I'm not trying to insult anybody. If these descriptions are insulting, my encouragement is don't be that way. <laughs> um, yeah, if you teach something to somebody, do you have a teaching ministry? Well, not in the normal usage of the word in English. Paul's rhetorical questions show us that not everybody's supposed to teach, right? Colossians chapter 1 verses 12 uh, chapter 12, excuse me, verses 29 and 30, where he's like, hey, does, are, all, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? His rhetorical answer to that is no, 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 no. Not everybody does this. I don't want everyone to try to have a teaching ministry. That's weird. You're just going to create competition in the body of Christ and pride and arrogance and division. So conclusions, here they are. Here's my conclusions from today's video. Everything wrapped up in a nice little summary, we covered five arguments. The first was the persecution argument. This is where Paul says, um, or N.T. Wright says, Paul put women in prison and that proves that they were leaders in the churches. I demonstrated that that's clearly false. This is not a good reason to think women were in eldership or high leadership positions. Number two, Jesus was training women to be rabbis, not just disciples, because Mary, quote, sat at the feet of Jesus. And that phrase has special meaning. False. There isn't really good scholarship to support this as far as I could tell. And women, um, uh, we, well, what we can learn from this argument, though, it's, it's completely false. Like you can't learn anything about them in leadership, but you can absolutely learn that women should be able to learn any theology and not have any compulsion against the idea of pursuing, say, a degree in theology and pursuing, you know, serious scholarly work in theology. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, number three. The universal priesthood argument. This is the idea that all believers are priests and for a few reasons, therefore, women can do any, any ministry a man can do. This is false for a few reasons, but priesthood is not the only factor in eldership. I labored on that point quite a lot. Priest, being a priest is not the only factor in any ministry, in, in any ministry, let alone every ministry. But um, men also, I push back and say, complementarians, we got to stop saying men are the priests of their home. I don't think that's a biblical phrase. We can tell them to lead. We can ask them to take charge. We can ask them to do it in a godly and biblical way. Uh, women are also priests in their home. They're also leaders in their home. But there is, a, there is a correct biblical hierarchy there. Nobody mediates in the church, though. Nobody mediates between us and God. There's no New Testament equivalent to the priesthood represented by any sort of role in the church beyond just being a Christian. Fourth argument we covered was the prophecy argument. This is the idea that if women can prophesy to the whole church, which I agree with, at gathered assemblies of men and women, then they surely should be allowed to teach or be elders. Um, now, my pushback here is prophecy is radically different in very important ways I listed in detail. It's very different than um, teaching in an elder role. Right? Women can speak to mixed audiences, at least outside the role of elder, at least when God's giving them something to say, that we should say, and complementarians need correction, some of them, on this topic. Yeah, don't, don't be so paranoid about that. 
uh, forgive me, that, that's a, an a unkind way to put it. Let me say this. Don't be so worried about that. Um, it's a particular teaching role, a particular office of the church that's trying to be preserved. Number five, the idea is that God gifts women with spiritual leadership, with, with leadership and teaching, excuse me. Therefore, they should be able to do ministries that involve those things. And I say again, this is false. Women can teach and lead, but they should find expression of those gifts outside the role of elder, which the Bible seems to very clearly indicate is only for men and gives numerous reasons why. We will get into all these as the series continues. Bottom line, nothing refutes the basic idea that only men can be elders. Nothing refutes, at least at least outside of extreme circumstances where I'm always open to exceptions to a rule. Nothing refutes that idea. Next time, we're going to get into the ultimate egalitarian proof. It will be a shorter video. I promise you a lot shorter, actually. Maybe really short. Um, the next video, though, is about Galatians 3.28. This is the verse that says there's no male and female in Christ. There's no male and female in Christ. And many egalitarians see this as the ultimate proof of their position. We're going to address this. And we'll deal with it in detail. That'll be next time around. Thank you guys for joining. Uh, give us like till tomorrow. We'll have timestamps and links down below to any of the stuff that you're looking for. Thank you all. Thank you so much for the mods, for giving massive amounts of your time to help us all out as we pursue this stuff. I appreciate those who respond to me and those who are critical of me even. But let me just say this. When I, I watch the criticisms. More than anything, I watch people pushing back. If you want to push back on me in this series and you want my attention... You have to give details. I mean, source, quoting sources, real details. Here was your claim, Mike. I understand your claim. Here's my response. Here's the evidence that shows that it was wrong. If you do that, I'll put in my next video.